You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Proteum Machining. And this week, I am happy to welcome two guests, actually. First up, Chris Zappatini. You know him, you love him, and you have brought a friend. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you, Jason Peterson. Welcome, Jason. Hi. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. Yeah, hopefully it's hopefully it's a banger for you. Um, I am the COO of a company called X2 Development Group based in Boise, Idaho. Uh, I'm also, you know, co-founder and, and owner, partial owner of that company. And what we do is we make uh, um, weapons. So if you go to x2devgroup.com, we make the ARX Light Fighter a a version of the uh, AR-15, we make suppress- suppressors is where we started. So we have these flow-through suppressor designs. We, I would say we're very much a technology-heavy company in the firearm industry. So we have many, many patents, and we are, you know, uh, working on making that stuff or partnering with or making those things go. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the, 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 the 10-second elevator pitch. Awesome. Well, I am looking forward to diving into your backstory, but I would be remiss if we did not get an update from Chris because it's been a little while since you're on the show. Yeah, Chris, how are you doing? Uh, terrible. <laughs> it's been, it's been, and like, yeah, like I don't remember. I was like Mickey Jacobs, f- friend of the show, like posted that he got a couple Matsuras, and I was like sick. You know, it's like I was working on those. Except for like the last week and a half when, you know, I've been in a pit of despair and he was like, every day is a pit of despair. And I like, it's a weird, that'd be a weird transition to be like, yeah, but you know, my mom died like two weeks ago. (laughs) That's really where it is. But that's kind of what happened. Kind of. No, that's what happened. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is what happened is, yeah, like two weeks ago, my mom just like unexpectedly died. Uh, Like just laid down on the couch and like never woke up which is fucking so crazy. Um, <clears throat> like in the context of, and then like around like work and stuff was, was just really bonkers. Like it broke my brain and then my brain is still like totally fucking mush. Like yesterday was my first day back at work and I almost immediately had a panic attack uh, for like a couple of reasons. Um, one was they like they themselves are restructuring. And so they they like took a guy that was like essentially head of the shop and elevated him to like an opera, like basically Jason's position. So his boss formerly was the COO and now his boss is the is like the CEO, the owner. And it's it is bonkers. And so the plan that we had initially come up with kind of changed a little bit. Uh, and that immediately, like I was, it was very overwhelming and I like had to go in the bathroom and like hyperventilate and cry for a little while. And on top of that, they, the engineer who I already didn't really get along with was like, Oh, well all these parts then. And to be like the, thing that alleviated anxiety um leaving the project to go to go like grieve with my family and stuff was that the friday before we lit the thing off and got 20 hours of runtime the first time 
made all good parts, which is huge. It's massive came like, and that was the Friday before a long weekend. So we like, we ran it all day before we left. I lit it off and came back everything. It, nothing broke. Everything was good. All the parts measured good. Um, and so Tuesday was a really good day until I found out my mom died. And that was really weird at that same time, like about an hour before I found out, um, they had given us a new, he had given us a new model for a different part. Um, in that was part of the project. And he was supposed to be taking the changes that we had made to make a good part and incorporating it into their design. And, uh, I never ended up looking at them cause I, my, I just, it was just the last thing on my mind. And so I come back yesterday and he goes, Oh, we need all these to be the a four revision. And I was like, what the fuck is the a four revision? He's like, Oh, the a four, I sent it to you. And it's like, you sent me a four for the full size, not for the compact. And he's like, well, yeah, like they're the same oh, thing. And no. it's like, and it's like, these are two different things. And he's like, Oh, I'll get you the stuff. And then the changes that he made was like, why did you change this? Like, why did you change that? And I am like, where did this, where did this come from? Cause all of the changes that we made were based on what made a good part. And right, he's like, you already had a bunch of issues with the model from yeah. the get go with that project. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so we finally got to a point where like we, they ran that machine for two straight fucking weeks, you know, and they blew up one tool mostly from a misload, I hadn't gotten to the point of adding probing on the first stop to make sure that it wasn't misloaded. Um, and like we I'd just set calipers, like stick it out this far and you're good. And that was working and it worked except one guy didn't do it. And then it blew up a tool, whatever. But for the most part, it ran for a week and a half without any issues besides that one and, or two weeks. And like, it, we were just cranking and then you come back and it's like, well, they're bad. They're not, we need them to be to the A4. And it's like, what is this? And I furious, like absolutely well, then, furious. Like, why run them for two weeks then? If he knew it, yeah. he was yeah. supposed to be a four, like the, the whole thing makes no sense. Well, no, no. And that's where like part of this. And so that guy as along with somebody else at the company is a reason for, the restructure of this company because they need product and there's like this constant changes for like little bullshit that doesn't make any sense where it's like it is you start changing things that and like jason and i could get into this too at a certain point with x2 because like we did this we did this with x2 mm-hmm. also i have a, too much experience with gun startups at this point where <laughs> where you start to where you get like way too in the weeds with the design and you're doing things that the mark like that you care about but the market doesn't care about and it's like why and so like they have like a 600 gun backlog which is crazy and it's it's massive i wish like, that's i had awesome. that right exactly <laughs> yeah. especially like the bottom like the cheapest gun is like two grand or something it's insane and you don't um, have a marketing team probably should get you in contact with somebody over there because like the dude is like 
a billionaire. <laughs> like yeah. it's crazy. Um, Although, I mean, well, jump in, it, we'll jump into it later, but we, yeah, we changed yeah, yeah, our yeah. business model a, that, a bit. That's, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, yeah. Uh, but so like all these changes and we cranking, 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 everybody was like, oh, this is good. And we're happy. And then I see the changes and it's like, this doesn't make any sense. This is going to int- make, create an interference. We made this change. We made a change to this thickness to, to make it good. And you added 12 thou to that. Why? And there was literally no reason. And so reprogram, <laughs> make it, it interferes. And the guy, the whole, the engineer, the whole time is like very combative about like just zero accountability for anything that's happening. Oh, like I sent him the changes for the model, which he didn't implement any of them. And he's like, well, when you said you changed it for manufacturability, I didn't realize I had modified the model. Right. And he's like, I didn't realize that that was something that you wanted integrated into the model. Like, do you not understand how this (laughs) fucking works? Like what the fuck, dude, what are you talking about? Like you guys are moving to a model like the full FAI, like you want to do this the quote unquote correct way where when you set up a part, you check everything before you fire it off. And it's like, we need the models to be good and accurate to what we're making. So like all these features that I changed need to be changed. And I had had a conversation because I've worked, we've all worked with people like this where they're like, well, what did you change? And you're like, I changed this, this way. And they're like, cool. I'll do it. And then they change it different way. And it's like, why, why did you do that? You couldn't have made it more simple for them. Yeah. And they continued to screw it up. Yeah. Like one feature it's, it was like a slot. Right. And I, I made it smaller and it went from like whatever it was to like three, three twenty radii on the end. And they're 80 thou apart. And he does, inexplicably 330 and 70 thou part. And it's like, why, why? Like, it's like, do you just have to have your fucking fingerprint on it that bad? Like who cares? Like the, you're losing the thread and their company is actively going through a restructure because you guys can't get product out the door. And we went through two weeks of full production to, to now, um, to now the machine hasn't ran in two days because we're go we're back in like active development. And we went from, I was, I was going to have two full parts in production by the end of this week to now we might go back to having one part in production. Uh, Cause I don't know. It was the most mind blowing thing. So I'm redoing, like, we're essentially coming up with a new scope document from this part, from this point forward that is locking in their designs and we're changing it, like the original contract to like drop a part, but add, like drop one part, add two parts or whatever, and like get a little bit more money out of it and some other stuff. And like also account for the fact that I'm taking like all of October off. Because the project was supposed to be completely done by now, but we spent like two and a half weeks in active development of the part that was production ready. Um, All of that, like, wow, my brain is just like a total fucking mess. Now it's like, 
I already wasn't looking forward. Like I was in the group chat with you and Alex. I was so like, I am not looking forward to this at all. I don't care about this. Like, I mean, I'm just kind of going through like that existential crisis of like, why even work? It doesn't even matter. Like we're all going to die. What are we doing now? (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah. Jason gets it. He did die. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I I died a few times. It was uh, was a heck of a year. And so that's kind of my update. Like after like more or less, like after my mom died, I went to California. I spent time with family. Then I went up, I spent some time with Scoob and my buddy CD who live in like the Portland Metro area. And then I hung out with Jason for a couple of days and he gave me like this little box and I was just grinding Pokemon red for like for hours. <laughs> First off, I'm so incredibly sorry that you've had to go through this. That's it's, like, yeah. I, I, there's nothing I can say at, and I don't know, you know, there is nothing I can say. So I'm just yeah. incredibly sorry that you're having to go through this, but uh, I do want to make that transition because, Jason, you just said you died a few times and yeah. it came off like a joke. So this might be a good time it's to totally get into your funny. backstory and how you got where you are now yeah, still yeah. alive. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so give, give me the full story. How did you well, get to where you are? Yeah, I'm going to tease it. So yeah, if you, you know, um, listeners out there, uh, st- st- if you can stick around for a little while, there is death. Um, so we'll, we'll eventually get there. But uh, I'm 45. I've been in, uh, in or around machining since I've been 18. Um, so there's uh, a lot, a lot to cover, I, I guess, over the years. So how I started where, where I'm from originally, I'm born and raised in Ohio, um, uh, east of uh, Cleveland, right on the lake called Manor, Ohio. And, uh, my, the way I got into manufacturing was, or in, into machining brought me in was my best friend in high school named Bill Panzarella lived across the street from me. And his dad owned where he was like the, the lead of a little uh, machine shop. Um, and then he was transitioning into um, purchasing that shop from whoever the owner was before around that time when I was 18. And I just needed a, a job. You know, I was working at like, you know, Burger King and, and stuff like that. And uh, um, I got a job in his shop just sweeping floors and this is the epitome and if anybody knows like from the rust belt and and you know living in that area this is this was the epitome of disgusting shop and um but it was good for me like looking back on it it was very good for me this was a little shop called discharge machine totally out of business now but i think they went under i mean i was there they went under and right after september 11th 2001 that kind of really tanked the tank the you know the market for everybody and that company was you know on its last legs anyways what we did there was mostly cold form cold form or uh, hot forged dyes so we you know these these things are expendable in in um in their in their world so basically it's um uh dyes made the cold form dyes would be made out of like m m2 steel and they're for like big ass bolts for like, I don't know, building freaking bridges or whatever. And, you know, some of the customers would be like RB and W and probably if no one knows freaking anything about Ohio, like RB and W was a big company or whatever. So we would, and these things were perishable. Basically you, you know, they would take freaking steel, slam them into these dies that would make the hex and 
the head of the bolt and everything. And, and, you know, like one, it's funny, the things I remember, one of the ones that we would sell to him every month, I just remember the hex size and it was one inch 406 plus or minus one. It was always in my head. Still is to this day. (laughs) It's crazy. Anyways. um, And then there was like a draft angle to him and, 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 and so forth. So, you know, and it was like a four stage die. So they would, you know, incredibly quick slam material into this die that we made with and then there was i forget what the other part of it called the die and then you got like the head or whatever the punch the punch that would slam in the you know the head thing and then it would go through four stages in this cold form in this particular cold form process um as you can imagine from all that pressure and and so forth though they don't last long so they got to buy them every month so that's good for us right we got to you know make more of the same thing every month and they want to buy them um and then on the hot forge side, it's a little different where you're, you know, feeding in um, material through an induction area where you're heating up that piece of material and then it goes into the die and it's forging, you know, forming whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. In this case, we were making railroad spike. We were making the spike dies for uh, companies down in Alabama that were, um, you know, railroad spikes, basically. So we made two different styles of those things, a Vulcan spike, I think it was called, and, and something else. Um and that's really the bread and butter of that company at that time. So I, I came in, I was just sweeping floors, doing, you know, just, just doing that. It was a disgusting shop. So this was, you know, like uh, 98, 99, you know, those kind of years. And the machines that they were running were 1950, like Kern and Trekker mills and, you know, to do like the slab milling. There was bridge ports the most advanced machines they had an old cincinnati millicron uh, i don't even remember the model lathe cnc lathe but it a was a talon a talon yeah yeah actually it might have been before a talon i don't know it was i mean we didn't have to put tape into it but it was freaking old i mean well we had a dnc hook it up or whatever maybe it was originally tape but that old ass machine um, and then just like, you know, just optical comparators that looked like they were from, you know, 1930s. I mean, a lot of the machines, I, I don't know if it's been talked about, but like they were, some of them were like military surplus from World War II. So like they all had the same green color to them. You know what I'm saying? Like, I guess yeah. that was a, a thing from that area. Oh, yeah. So I'm dealing with machines or I started. So what happened was I sweeping floors um, and then they and the the way they were um um putting the hex um into these dies was conventional edm so not wire edm which was around i didn't know i mean i don't know anything at this point so they we were using conventional edm so we're using you know graphite basically you put it on an electrode and you just pump it through you know so with, that's where the name came from so in in the heyday so I, what i what i gather and what i know now is like basically this company was um, the best thing in the world in in the sixties and early seventies, and then just never innovated and never kept up with technology. But however, had still had these good deals with certain customers that could you know, um, you know, support the company at least in in some form. But there was no investment in new stuff. So what I'm saying is, when I came in, the the new stuff was that freaking Cincinnati Millicron from like probably nineteen. 19- 82 and you know it was already 15 years or whatever old and then also the they had a uh, man what the hell was it it was a bastardized it was basically uh, 
maybe it'll come to me. But anyways, it was like kind of like a CNC pack that you throw on a Bridgeport, you know, I forget the name of the company that made it, but anyways. Prototrack? Not a, it was like a Prototrack, but it wasn't Prototrack. It was something else. But yeah, very much that. And that was like the the, the newest thing they had there, right? So <clears throat> they needed someone to, or <laughs> they wanted someone to start helping make electrodes. And the way they were making electrodes in the shop, like from back then is basically they had this room and it had a whole bunch of little surface grinders, right? In a circle. And we were taking the, the graphite and grinding the sides to make the hex. So we had like little fixtures made that were hex. And then you would hold it against, you know, the, the rail, the stop on your, on your mag plate, cut it, you know, flip it, you know, the, the five times around and, and do that. And then, you know, measure and then move in your surface plate, you know, move in your grinder, you know, do whatever you got to do. Um, and it's obviously an incredibly filthy job, especially when you're in a shop like that, that did not have the proper ventilation. So they did event, they had the proper ventilation at some point. So in that room, if you can imagine, I think there was like six or so grinders because as you know, it was And one of the things I did take from that is like, it was very cellular. Like you would do this one part here, then you would move it to the next grinder that maybe had a, a one degree angle, um, to, you know, for the draft or whatever, then you would do that part on there. And then the next one would be the corners would be rounded on that hex you just made. So then it would have another fixture on there where if you would spin it and to get that dimension, you know, so it kind of worked around that way. And, and, and that was all, and that was all fine. And then there was, you know, special ones for like the, the, the railroad spike. So if you look at a railroad spike, basically you gotta, you know, if you gotta make the, um, the mouth and everything of where the spike part goes in, goes into the head, all that geometry in there was done by us, but with graphite. So we had to make those weird shapes and, you know, and it was like a two-step process actually in that thing. So anyways, very disgusting, dirty job. Um, and obviously, you know, they're like, Hey, you want to do this? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll do that. So that's kind of where I started getting into actually doing some sort of machining. And it was the fucking worst thing in the world. Um, because again, like I said, this company was going under and it was not putting any money into anything, you know, just trying to stay alive. And so in that room, you can imagine, you know, if you ever, if you ever ground graphite, it's just an automatic plume of black graphite, <laughs> like, it's, right, it's yeah. insane, right? And Might as well be they, a chimney sweep or something. No, like I mean, more. it's even worse than that. Like, I wish, I wish I would have, you know, if camera, you know, if found, you, cell phones were around then. Say it's like Ben Stiller and Zoolander <laughs> when he's in the mine. Yeah, no, it's even so. <laughs> Where he's just got just yeah, his eyes. No, I'm it, dead serious. That's what it is because. Yeah. I mean, I'm 18 and think I'm invincible, right? So it doesn't matter to me. I'll do the dirty job and, you know, whatever. So their ventilation or their exhaust system, basically, they had all these things hooked up. Uh, all the grinders were hooked up to a, a single unit that would, you know, suck all the, theoretically, suck all the graphite into a big, huge, you know, micron thing and whatever. Well, it hit, and I was I worked there for many a year, you know, three or three years or so. And, uh, 
that entire time that thing never worked. So it was just, you're in a room with a fan blowing as much graphite as you can off of you to the back. And there's no air conditioning in, you know, in, in Ohio in the, in the summertime, it's the worst job. I mean, but here's the thing. Sweating buckets. Yeah. You're sweating. (laughs) I mean, I did wear a, you know, just a, you know, a typical, um, just a mask mask yeah yeah nothing like you know like covid lockdown kind of mask you know nothing crazy the fact that you lasted three years i mean that is determination right there or stupidity it was on and off i actually (laughs) moved into other positions but um but yeah so that's kind of where i started and i just went into it there and uh uh um yeah i mean and it's no joke chris like i would be it would just be I would have my mouth clear from where I was wearing the mask, but um, it would still not be enough to seal. Like I should have got a better mask or whatever. Like, and so um, like blowing your nose and like, it was all black. black. No, that's serious. My nose was always snotting black. No matter what, like it could be like, you know, you leave work on Friday and then Sunday you're still snotting black. And, you know, I, I'm like, hey, this is fine. It's like Stranger Things when Will's freaking barfing up the thing. The, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is totally fine with me, you know. And and so, and again, don't know any better. And I'm dealing with surface grinders and I'm trying to hold plus or minus one on manual surface grinders that are from 1950s. And Can you even see the part? That's the thing. So I would cut and, you know, grind and then. Basically, you do like a rough semi-finite, you know, you would work your way in because these machines were sold and I couldn't control repeatability at all. And, you know, it's it just is what it is at, at that point. It's really, you know, learning um, very, very, um, you're trying to learn, if you can imagine trying to learn manual machining in an environment where you're dealing with 30-year-old machines and then on top of it, you don't know what you don't know, right? Like, I don't know that, like, it could be the machine's fault because I'm dealing with freaking old-time Ohio freaking machinists, and they're like, if you screw this up, this is your fault, and you're a piece of shit. And I'm like, all right, cool, <laughs> yeah. cool, cool. So everything's my fault, right? And if you're if you're from Ohio, one of the, or Midwest, um, one of the other podcasts I listened to, which brought up a very good point, and it's very, very true, is you always apologize even like I still do it to this day. Like when I'm asking one of my workers to do something, I start out with, I'm sorry, even yeah. though it's very, it's not even like you're just in this, in Ohio Midwest mindset of like, it just sucks. And it's always your fault for everything. And so, so taking that mentality into a job like this and not knowing any better, I really racked my head or, and really spent a lot of time thinking about, um, trying to make good parts on shit machines and shit processes and understanding that, you know, this company was just trying to stay alive. Right. So they, all they cared about was trying to get parts out the door using just the worst way possible. So transitioning from there, they saw that, Hey, I actually, you know, was doing, I guess, okay. And doing whatever that was. And then in, in quick succession kind of just moved into just, running the couple EDM machines also, which again, these are, these are old ass conventional EDM machines. So nothing like what you're thinking of, like a Charmé or, or whatever, like these are, um, Bridgeport style machines that have a freaking energy pack hooked up to the head 
that just feeds down and there's no like pulsing or, you know, there's no, there's pulsing up and down, but there's no, and you can charge, you can use the electrical discharge to turn on and off and, you know, control your voltage and all that stuff that way. But it wasn't like where the new ones will actually like move to the left a little bit, move to the right a little bit. And, you know, you can kind of draft in and, you know, it, it does all this cool stuff. Right. And, and that's what we had. And that's what I was using to make these dies. So using those machines and again, using freaking, they'd never been maintenance or anything from 1950. They are dielectric fluid is what's in them. And they're just open, like they're just open top tanks with a freaking Bridgeport head that goes into the tank and, you know, does its thing to the point where when you wanted it to pull, like the one machine was broken as far as like pulsing. So if you had a flushing issue, the way that in conventional EDM that you would, you would uh, fix try or how we would overcome. I don't know if it's the right way to be quite honest, but the way that I would come overcome a flushing issue, like I wasn't getting enough flush through the part to clear out what the, the discharge um, was removing. So, you know, uh, again, if people don't know, basically you're taking a graphite, you're putting an electrical charge to there and it's like reverse welding. It's going through making a shape and the technically the graphite should not be touching the metal per se, but in between those two things with the charge, it's actually like kind of precision removing the metal. And then the flush from the dielectric fluid pushes that particles away. So that way they never touch. Cause if they touch, they ground out and then you're not, you know, efficiently burning basically. Um, because of many things, again, the maintenance or whatever, like we had really dirty dielectric fluid, like now looking back on it, like I'm fighting things that I are trying to come up with solutions for things that are really, it's like, dude, just clean out the machine, do a very good clean out of the machine, put in some new dielectric fluid. And it probably would have fixed 90% of my freaking problems that I had for two years. Well, but but, but I, how no one tells you... me, no one knows. I don't know. Really all the people that were good in this place left right they all went and got jobs somewhere else so this is just barely hanging on and no one's and even if you know i did know that right and came and say hey this is the problem this is how you fix it they didn't have the money to do it or they wouldn't have the time or want to have the time to do it can't afford the downtime need to make parts right that's kind of like a weird like catch-22 oh for sure so (laughs) um so so going into that, so, you know, I'm dealing with, and then the machine, there are machines where you can like pulse them. Right. And this, this one machine did not have that pulse feature or it was broken. I don't remember what it was. I mean, like I said, this is a long time ago. How, so the way that I would get it through parts is I would sit there and you could take a wrench. I would put my hand in the convention, in the, in the dielectric fluid take a big ass wrench you would put it grounded on the table and then touch the head and as you did that as you did that it would ground out and it would move up a little bit right so i could (laughs) so i could i could ground out the head and make it flush dude honestly i'm surprised you made it this long (laughs) how how did how did that there's like so many red flags of like <laughs> yeah. this is how you could have died and i'm just so, like waiting till we get oh, to this point like oh where my, where is this red flag dude, dude you gotta wait like 25 years till he dies <laughs> yeah this, this is crazy this is where <laughs> so <clears throat> sorry um one of the things with my new condition when i died i my mouth gets really dry and sorry if i start sounding a little raspy i uh 
I shocked myself a few times because I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no shit. Yeah, oh, no, did you? Crazy, right? So yeah. not having it grounded on the table and you touch the head, you get a hell of a shock. Like <laughs> it feels like the first dude, the first time. Seriously, feels like someone grabbed you from behind and moved you back one inch. Yeah. Like you, I have never <laughs> felt it. Oh my god! So and I did that a few times. Um, oh. So, <laughs> so anyways, oh I uh, from uh, attrition in the shop, and then just me, you know, trying to do the best I can and feeling guilty for everything because I'm a poor Ohio boy. I uh, we ended up, you know, just slowly kind of working through those things and. Again, these machines were pieces of shit. So like one of the things, you know, when you're burning something like this and like I said, I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with basically a bridge port with no digital readouts or nothing, just dials. Right. And I'm, and I didn't even, wasn't even smart enough at the point to throw a dial indicator on the table to see how it's moving, to see if it, you know, matches what the dial says it's moving. Um, eventually I got there pretty quick, but then these machines were so bad that I, what I learned in, uh, prior to starting my own shop, which was born out of this shop was I needed to put an indicator on both sides of like X on both sides, because it was so worn out that even though, like if I had just had the indicator in the middle, the, and I move one thou based on the dial indicator, the table was so bad that I had to do it on both sides and make sure that on the X left side and the x right side they both moved one thou because they would not necessarily like that's how bad these machines are. that is and i'm just bonkers. <laughs> yeah and i'm just trying to fix it and just put band-aids on it because i don't know any better right and um <laughs> and so in these dies or whatever the one of the most critical things is the concentricity of the hex to the od like that is incredibly important because obviously you're slamming material in these things and then moving them through stages and so getting it as close as you could to burn the center, what we had to do because of the old technology and the way we do it is then you would send it out. We would send it into our OD grinding plate. We had, you know, OD big ass, old ass OD grinders where, you know, you would run them off the centerless grinders. You would run it off a mandrel that grabbed off the hex and then you would grind it perfect concentric to that hex. However, the process was you would turn the die. You would turn the head of the die right where the 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 head of the the bolt would be. So it would be round. And it would have like stampings in there, like you know whatever the grade of the bolt was or whatever. So I, but then it would come to me and it had the through hole in it, and I would have to burn the hex through that through hole. Well, the hex had to match that head right that was turned on the that shitty falc the uh, shitty Talon CNC machine in the back, and obviously there was variation so i and there was nothing so i i really had to try to figure out like okay how do i on this piece of shit machine get that head to line up with my hex within you know and i think it was i mean it had to be within it had to be within a thou like it was insane and and so i'm dealing with the worst equipment you could possibly have and trying to make it work and actually making it work and that's the one thing that I, I really take from there is one, it got me in, interested in machining, but then it really opened my eyes, like problem solving and only in doing it in a way that really makes you think outside the box 
not that it was the right way at all, but really, really makes you, cause you're, I'm racking my brain and I, even though it was a stupid shitty job, I personally am racking my brain and I'm like, okay, how can I do that better? Like, how could I figure that out better with what I have? I don't, I'm don't have the resources. This is what's available to me. Is there a way I can make, hit these print, you know, hit these numbers so I don't get yelled at by the boss basically. And, um, so I do really, uh, in that, in that, you know, two or three years, or whatever, I really do, um, value that. And I still use it to this day in, in, in everything we do. I can, I can attest to that having worked with him yeah. on like some of the things, especially like I can think back to like some of the earlier X2 stuff. Um, and like the Nemo stuff where you're getting into like turning titanium or turning stuff. And it's like, we have to have 11 thou of stock to remove on this. And you have like a notebook with all the different iterations you tried to get to the point of 11 thou is the number that the rougher, the number for the material that the rougher needs to leave for us to get good finish and good tool life for this, for this particular insert. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting to, to hear you talk about like, this is the inception point of that level of problem solving. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that a job like that gives you a pretty healthy understanding of preventative maintenance and needing <laughs> it and buying new machines and not mm-hmm. stagnating too. Like mm-hmm. that would, oh, yeah. I, I've worked All in jobs like that and it's given me a real healthy fear of stagnation mm-hmm. and of like, oh, this is what it feels like to die slowly as a business. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then also taught me, you know, how I didn't want to be, uh, just in general in life, like, I mean, this was the way that that shop, um, it, they're just hardened old tool and die guys from the Rust Belt. And the way that they would interact with me was, you know, I mean, it was just straight up abusive. And, um, and that was just how it was. And, and the way that, you know, I took it was, you know, that's just, you take your lumps and this is how it is. And, um, now, you know, you know, 25 years later on and I'm, you know, running a company and, you know, trying to build a culture of how I want things, um, did very much leave a, like, I, I learn a lot. It seems from people doing things wrong, which is good. I, I think that's one of the things like, yeah. uh, yeah, you learn yeah. a lot about what not to do. Right. Yeah, right. Those like, are the strongest lessons. Right. Like, Reaffirming your own beliefs. You're like, yeah, okay. I already knew that. But like yeah. you see something, terrible and that right. that leaves the impression really yeah yeah i mean and that started i mean not to you know get so heavy because you know chris's mom passed or whatever and my yeah. mom died of cancer uh you know back we can when cry I was like we can cry mike it's okay um but that's what started that that thought process and and me really internalizing like learning from other people's mistakes was my mom was an alcoholic my entire life growing up and being around that and how it affected my family and um I knew instantly at a very young age that I will never drink. Right. And that was just not something I would ever try. And, you know, and then again, another joke in the family too, is that, you know, I didn't need to, cause my brother did enough for both of us. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> the brother that I met. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. So, did. uh, any rate. So I take, you know, I mean, obviously I, I've learned through my own mistakes and I made plenty of mistakes, but, one of my things I think that I, um, 
I'm grateful for is, I don't know if it's, you know, if it comes down to just like empathy or, um, for another person, or if it's just learning, seeing other people and how they conduct themselves and just saying like, I am never doing that. Like that is just not the way to, to go. And then really internalize it and really make sure you don't do that. You know, that's the other half of it. Totally. So, yeah. Um, so that's this discharge machine days. Um, and like I said, I, um, I'm actually very grateful for that time. I learned, uh, a lot, not right stuff, but I learned, I guess a little bit started understanding what I was, um, maybe capable of and the problem solving skills that I really, you know, that still benefit to me, benefit me to this day when, you know, you don't have the resources that you need and to do the things you need to do. Um, from there, uh, I, again, September 11th happened and the economy just crashed overall. Right. And this company was already, you know, at the end of its, at the wit's end. And, and the only people that were there at the end was me, another guy named John. And then the, the owner who's my best friend's dad, um, Bill Panzarella. And he was done and, you know, tried to do his best to bring the company back. And he was, you know, he was a hard ass motherfucker. If (laughs) his, I'm sure his son will be listening to this. And one of the, I got to tell the story. I'm sorry. I don't know how much time we have. I think I'm going to make this your longest fucking episode ever. But um, bring it up. (laughs) So this dude, this guy was, he was just phenomenal. And so this is what I worked with. And uh, this is how all the people I worked with. And even in that, and not just that company, but I'm just saying like, this is just kind of the mentality of that time in Ohio in manufacturing was this mentality. And this mother, this motherfucker was the hardest so um obviously we lived across the street from each other right and uh i needed to drive him home one day from work because his car was in the shop or whatever and uh, he smoked paul malls unfiltered Ugh. and Ugh. i don't smoke and no one smokes in my car right like that's just not a thing and so um i mentioned it to him no, I did not mention him. I was scared of shit of him. I didn't even mention to him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm scared of shit of this guy. And, uh, he, uh, so we're, dri- <laughs> we're, dri- we're driving home. We get in the car. He automatically lights up. Doesn't roll the window down. Was it, was it wintertime? No, I don't know if it was wintertime. I don't remember, but I rolled my window down because yeah. like I can't stand it. And, uh, yeah. he proceeds. And so, because I, you know, never smoked my car and everything, my cigarette uh, ashtray thing, because cars used to have this ashtray in them. I had a, it was a 94 Ford Tempo was in this car. And it was the first car that I bought that was financed, you know? So I like was really okay. taking good care of it. You know, like I, it was a yeah. piece of shit Ford Tempo, but it was my car, you know, and my first kind of major purchase. And so in the ashtray I had, that's where I kept all my coins, like all my change, <laughs> spare oh, change. No. Yeah, And he opens it and sees all the change in there and does not give two shits and just puts his <laughs> <laughs> doesn't give two shits and then just, you know, smokes and we drive home and he just talks. I don't know what we were talking about, whatever, and then drop him off and that's that. But that's <laughs> oh my God. such a funny story. It I seems just, like I just even it. if even if you told him, you're like, hey, nobody smokes in my car, I'd be like, oh, crazy, and just do it yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I guess yeah. there's a first for everything, right? Yeah. yeah, well. yeah. 
Get over it, pussy. Um, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah he, was such a, he was such a hard ass. But you, so you can imagine if you go to him and you made a bad part, like, you know, how that's, uh, how that's going, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> anyways, moving on. So September 11th happens. That's the three of us that are left. Bill is done. You know, he's just, you know, he's defeated and done and ready to retire and, and actually just pack up and move to California. What? Yeah, yeah. He had um his other his other son lived out in California and you know, I mean, the company I mean, he really tried the company and maybe I'm speaking out of turn cuz I don't know all the dynamics, but he put a lot of his own money into the company and I think even like, you know, second mortgage on his house kind of thing and really really tried his his damnedest to make it go, but not, you know, obviously not in the proper way where you're actually, you know, in you know, buying new technology or, you mm-hmm. know, doing those things. He, I think a lot of it was, he thought he, the, you know, I don't know, but I assume he thought the owner prior was just running it bad and that all he had to do was run it better. And so I think a lot mm. of the money that he brought in was to pay off that piece of shit prior that owned it um, and not, didn't have enough money in, you know, to, you know, actually make it better or maybe didn't even have the skill set to make it. I don't know. But yeah. anyways, he was, it was after September 11th. I don't know how far after September 11th, but, you know, maybe three or four months and there was no work coming in at all from anywhere. And uh, he's like, yeah, I got to, you know, shut the doors and you know, I'm done. But he, what he did was, and he said, but if you want to take a few of these machines and take my customer list and if you think you can do something with it this, to me and john the last two guys go for it that's wild which is it was very very nice actually and yeah um even though they're a piece of shit machines right and um but there was still something there like there were still customers buying this stuff from them right like and and so john and i decided to okay let's try that so we were what we did was um there was where we were buying steel from at that moment was i don't even know the name of the company anyways they had a little extra open space in their steel factory you know basically they just bring steel in they would cut it to size you know and then ship it out to machine shops all over you know cleveland area they had a little area there and we decided to um uh, rent that space from him. And then we threw, and then we took, um, one of the surface grinders, the K and T mill, the CNC lathe, uh, one of the centerless grinders, just enough to do basically the same stuff that we would do if we can get these customers to, you know, purchase something from us, right. At the existing customer base. And then we went to them and said, hey, you know, discharge machine closed, but whenever you need parts, you know, these parts, we we can make them for you. And luckily, like pretty quickly, and obviously these machines are given to us. We just had to, move, you know, pay to move them. Actually, we moved them ourselves on our freaking, on a flatbed. It was insane to do, even do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, got everything, got everything into our, our, our nice little shop downtown Cleveland, actually in the flats. And, um, just trying to make a machine company, not knowing Dick. Right. And, but having, you know, um, a couple potential customers that knew us because, you know, 
as we were working in Discharge Machine, John and I, we would actually be delivering parts to these customers. So they kind of knew us and, you know, we would talk with them and whatever. So we kind of had some rapport, at least with the people that were shipping and receiving and you know, whatever. So it was, we weren't like an unknown quantity. There was at least some sort of continuity there. And we, you know, tried to maximize that as much as possible. Um, however, still got shit, right? Like we got crap machines and whatever. So we, but, but, one of the things I learned there is it doesn't really matter if you don't have any work, <laughs> yeah. if you don't have, you know, orders or whatever, it doesn't matter, you know, anything. So that's, you know, and, and again, I'm like, what, 2001, I'm 22 or three ish, I guess, somewhere in there. And been in manufacturing, you know, in this shop and doing things, but I'm not in, but I'm not like a sales guy or anything like that. And I'm in a position now where we got to, sell ourselves in some form or fashion to get this work, even though we have an in on these companies, which is great, right? You know, it's not like we're cold calling and trying to, you know, show them that, you know, we can do something. So then setting up those meetings with those companies. And, and that's why, you know, the, the three that I remember is MB Dynamics, um, Wellington Industries, and RB&W. Those were the three. And um, so RB&W was the cold form place. Wellington Industries was down in Alabama and they were the spike dies. And then um, MB Dynamics was a company that was in Ohio. And what they did, maybe they're still there, I don't know. But they make they made these devices and they would sell them to like, uh, um, well, it had a couple different iterations. But like one of the things would be they would stress a car. So like BMW or whoever would buy them and they would put these things that they would make on like the four tires and it was like a magnet thing. We would make the, like for what they even were called, but like we would make like a, we would take a copper sleeve that was maybe 30,000 thick ring that was probably like three inch OD and, you know, so a two inch, you know, 900 or 980 ID and we would drop that into um, a piece of steel heat shrink it into the middle of a piece of steel and then they would stack those and then put like electrical through them and they would like shake really fast and really hard mm. and you would they would put those things that they would make on the four tires and it would shake the car and stress the car so they could see where like noises were coming from in the window in the interior and whatever another thing they would do is they would make bigger versions and eventually we got in some fabrication of those bigger versions where they would throw them into fields and they would shake the shit out of the ground and they would know like if there was what was soft or whatever the composites underneath that ground were. So, if, you know, for building stuff or whatever, I guess they can do an assessment of, you know, what was underneath what depth or whatever. So we would make the, the some components for them. And that's actually the first one we actually got a new order from and that, you know, we, they, um, started us on our path. And again, like I said, we've been doing it the old way that we did it at discharge machine and we just replicated that. But then, um, I needed to meet with them and talk about that. And then I, I guess I'm getting pretty good at sales. I have to sell my company all the time and, and stuff I do now, but it started there where it just came to me, you know, and just got to ask, like, is there anything else we can do for you? Like, is there, you know, you know, and just, um, building that report and then just trying to sell that, which felt very, very to me to never do it before and, and kind of throw yourself out there like, Oh yeah. And you know, 
anything else you need and you feel like you're going to be like no stupid get out of here <laughs> or something yeah. but like and you know and turn into things and then you know we went down to alabama and met with wellington and that was really good because you know like yeah we're you know we you know obviously we're slowed down so we weren't buying any more dyes because we had a you know inventory of whatever the hell they had and they had wanted to run through that before they bought more but they they ended up buying more and they were pretty steady going from there and then we ended up because we went down there and visited like oh can you make these things for us can you make these things for us and like yeah and they were super simple and the thing about the railroad industry it's subsidized by the government right i don't know if you guys know that but like it's still subsidized to the government to this day and so if you could imagine like i went to this place because they're like well the government's going to buy them eventually and so they would just run and run 55 gallon drums of spikes and there was fields of them fields but the thing is what a crazy unit of measure you just threw out there the yeah 55 gallon drums, drums. Of, of spikes. <laughs> and, and, I'm t- and i'm talking i'm not kidding you like an acre of just an open what? field of just drums of spikes yeah they're it, just aging them right That's, yeah it's part of the hardening <laughs> yeah. process right. exactly. it's a, taking precipitation hardening to another level yeah. you know because i guess you know what we did learn is like they do go through a shit ton of spikes because they have to replace them all year long. So they, they're constantly replacing them, you know, for whatever reason. Um, so, so, you know, it was, it was a good, good meeting with them and we got work out of them. And, and then we did the same thing with RB&W. That's when I started with RB&W though, is when I started learning that, Oh, there's way better ways of doing things. Right. So we went in there cause they were having an issue with our dyes and, you know, I'm trying to smooth it over to where we would st- still get paid by, you know, and keep, you know, keep funds moving. <laughs> yeah. in. And, uh, they, the guy just flat out say, these are the dyes I'm getting from your competitor. And this is what I'm getting for you. And it was so abundantly clear. Like I was giving him shit. Oh uh, no. Cause again, this is 2001, 2002. Wire EDM is not new. Yeah. And that's right. the way you make these things correct, right? Yeah. Like yeah. wire EDMing is the way you do this now. You don't do it the way we do it, right? And you just blast a big hole and then and then right. make it a hex. Yeah, you blast a big hole, make it a hex, and then we would spend a ton of time grinding down yeah. the the orange peel from the discharge process to get it up to, you know, whatever they wanted. I don't know, eight, oh. you know, if it was eight RA or I don't know, whatever it was. Yeah. I think it was sixteen maybe. But anyway. You didn't get there with discharge, like at least with my shit, you weren't going to get there. And so I saw that and I'm like, wait a minute, how the hell are they doing something that good? You know? And so then this is when I started initially like going out and looking at like, oh, wait, like there's this whole wire EDM thing that people do and like, oh crap. Like, you know. Yeah. Talk about uh, not knowing what you don't know. Right. right? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just going from. Um, you know, just got laid off from that, you know, discharge machining, trying to, and don't have any money. And John doesn't have any, and we're trying to bootstrap a machine shop and just, just trying to get some life going in there with just the way that we know and don't know anything else. And, you know, it's not like the internet's huge at this time or anything. Like there's just so many things that, you know, you only get from experience, right? And I had bad experience at this point to be quite honest. So, um, so that was all good. Like I learned a lot about business and I learned that I'd never want to have a fucking business partner. Um, (laughs) you did a good job. 
with yeah, that recently. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, in this in this instance, because it was like 50-50 and right. we built this machine shop. And So where I do was, you go from there now that you're kind of just like figuring things out? Well, at the same time, so that just that's just a spark. So and then at the same time in my personal life, I just met Danielle, my wife now, and we're thinking about getting married. Um, this is 2004, right? Or I'm starting to think about these things. And and then I'm reading about like, oh, there's like these CNC mills. Like I got these freaking two K&T mills that are doing this. I'm taking a five-inch slab mill and I'm cutting a slot through for like the railroad spike part. And I'm putting on different fixtures at three degrees and four degrees and, wow. you know, rerunning them at different angles. And I'm like, holy shit, you can go buy this freaking thing called a CNC mill and just do it all like, <laughs> yeah. you, you know what i'm saying like and then even even like what i was saying like the complicated geometry of like not even that complicated to us now but like the geometry under the head of the railroad spike like dude i could surface all that right now yeah <laughs> i could stand it up in a five and just search for i wouldn't even have to put it in an, in an edm machine like it was anyways just then i started learning that stuff i'm like all right if we're gonna do this we need to spend some money and get a CNC mill is what I wanted to buy. Right. And again, I'm trying to grow a company. I'm just getting married. I, you know, the world's in front of me. Well, my business partner was actually my age. I am now. So he was like 45 then not having any kids house paid for wife makes money. Not Mm. just not looking to do anything, you know, not looking to grow. And we were, you know, that's the main difference between us. Right. And so I'm like, we should do this. He's like, nah, I'm pretty much just good doing to- this. To- totally risk averse. Not, yeah. like, not, not trying to do any, like right. if we're making money, I'm happy. Kind of a right. hobby almost for him. Right. Yeah, wants and, to slide into retirement. Yeah. Right. And that's, you know, and, and that's fine. That's one way to do it. And I mean, I'm still risk averse because this is what the next thing happens is. So, you know, I proposed, I proposed my wife, Danielle, the next day, she actually went in for thyroid surgery. So I proposed to her. And the oh, next geez. day, she had thyroid surgery, which is just a, you know, general, a routine surgery where they remove your thyroid. Things went bad there with her health. And then, you know, in, you know, lovely America, you know, the health system here sucks ass. And knowing that I'm getting married and I am very much, you know, take care of your family and you know that kind of thing like everybody is but you know it's um and and so and this is all happening kind of at the same time so i got this like we don't really want to grow the business i got my wife who is dealing with now long-term things that we're going to have to deal with for the rest of our life you know we didn't know at that moment but these are long-term things we're going to have to deal with for the rest of our lives and we are still dealing with them um I need to have some, I, I am a little risk averse at this point. Right. Cause I'm like, Oh shit. My, my wife is, um, in a position and, and I got a guy that doesn't want to grow this business. I'm going to need more money. I'm going to need to pay for medical and all the stuff. And, you know, maybe, you know, my wife might not be able to work anymore. And yeah, it's really hard to take risk when nothing is stable in your life. Right. Like it's, it's okay when one part of your life is the risky exactly, part, but right. when everything is, yeah, it's incredibly it gets, hard. It gets super hard. You're so right. So in that moment, I said, okay, well, I guess I'm done here. So I, John, uh, we separated ways. I took some money and he just, you know, do his own thing. I immediately started looking for 
you know, a jobby job, right? Uh, the 40 hour freaking manufacturing job, you know, whatever. How, and, can I ask you real quick? Well, hmm. how was that conversation? Did you talk to your customers when you were no, shutting the doors? No, no. No, no, we didn't shut the doors. I mean, John might be still doing it for all I know. I don't, I don't. Oh, I see. Yeah. I I just, I just, I'm like, well, I'm done here. I can't. uh, That's how, that's what you mean when you separated. Yeah. We just separated as a, you know, as a partnership Mm -hmm. and he took the company, he paid me some money and I, I left, you know, it was nothing. Um, and, and so I proceeded to get a job at Lincoln electric, who's the big welding company. Um, and they are, um, they are in Cleveland, Ohio is the headquarters. And, um, one of the few companies from that area that, that is still there and still, you know, a big manufacturing and hiring, um, force in that area. I mean, it used to be like GE used to have TRW, TRW, you know, got broken up and fallen apart. GE, obviously, you know, Jack Welsh, I just learned really screwed that company up. And did you listen to that? Yeah, uh, behind man. the bastards, behind the it's bastards, Jack Welsh. Fu- wow. Yeah, a hundred thousand yeah. people lay a hundred thousand people laid off in in his first five years of yeah. running GE, yeah. which which they you can statistically um, tie to like forty suicides or something <laughs> like that, which is bananas. <laughs> the guy literally killed people. And then went on to write a book called Winning. Yeah. Yeah. T- yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah About yeah. that. And people yeah. still think he, you know, I mean. Was a big reason for the subprime mortgage crash. <laughs> 2008. Like, dude is just like, yeah, he he's winning something, you know? Yeah. yeah I don't know if you do show notes or whatever, but if, if we can put the behind the bastards links in there, man, that's a great part one, part two. I was looking for new podcasts and Zap when he was here morning is dead mom a couple a couple days ago um, i'm sorry we, we, we have a we have a, so we have a dylan thing. we have a very open a f- yeah, very yeah, funny yeah. relationship and we'll, we'll share that but you know if you don't if you don't laugh if you don't laugh yeah. you're right. crying right yeah so, yep. yeah no i'll make sure to put the the episode yeah. links in yeah, the, no, the show notes yeah they're anyways got off a little bit there so where was I? I don't even remember where I'm You're at. You're talking Electric. about, yeah, Lincoln Electric. Oh, so that's when I started Lincoln Electric. And I just started as a machinist there. I remember walking around with the foreman of the machining portion of Lincoln Electric. Lincoln Electric, but they had many assembly lines Assembly lines there where they were pumping out the different, you know, welders that they were they were selling. And and then there was ancillary things that were feeding into that that beast and that's how they made money. And there was a whole manufacturer, there was two huge bays of machining where they would machine widgets that would go into those welders. Right. And, um, and so I'm walking down and going from where I was, what I known so far at discharge machine and what I brought from discharge machine and, you know, in my shop, they didn't really have much newer s- stuff really at Lincoln. Like they had new, they had some, a lot of Mazax. Mazax got brought in there in the in the late eighties, early nineties. So they had a lot of Mazak hor- horizontals, but a lot of the other stuff still was old, older stuff like gear hobs and you know manual gear hobs and, and stuff like that. And then there they had a lot of not a lot, but they had like twelve Davenports, so multi little screw machines, cam driven screw machines, which is insane. And then a bunch of old Warner Swayze, you know, five or six spindle, 
you know, multi-spindle Warner Swayze's. Um, and, um, so it was laid out better. They had a maintenance staff, so things were taken care of better, but it's still old antiquated equipment, right? There's still way better stuff. I remember walking around with Kenny Walters, who, who was the foreman. He retired. He was a wonderful guy actually, and gave me in, um, some opportunities there that really, I think set me on a path, but he walked me down both of those aisles and said, Hey, can you run that? I go, I never ran one before, but give me a couple of weeks. I'll learn it. Like that's, that was my mentality. Like I can do anything. Just give me a little time and I'll, I'll figure it out. Right. He ended up putting me on. Um, so every, you know, there was multiple work centers, right? He ended up putting in me in, in my, the first work center was an old Monarch mill. So this was a, you know, again, a glorified CNC Bridgeport, just a big boy. It had an old monsters. Yeah. It had an old ass control on it that I at, at Lincoln electric in the two thousands had to load tape into it to put the program. Oh my God. Like (laughs) that's and like, I would, you know, it was like some of them were like old tape, some of them were mylar tape. And then to get like, if it got cut or whatever, I'm trying to tape it together to make sure it still feed through and it, you know, feeding problems. It was in, Sane. Were there were there a lot of like hanging Chad jokes in no, that time? Not, not no, a, there should have been. <laughs> right? There should have been. That seems yeah, right. like that's just like a softball, there. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a good point. But um, so that's what I started at Lincoln Electric on. And, and the thing about Lincoln Electric, which I actually found very interesting and, and still think about often, is was a um piece workshop so i i don't know if you know what that is but basically you get paid per piece so whatever mm. you produce is exactly what you get paid for oh wow yeah and so they had a time study group that would you know time you and then register all your movements it was very interesting to start learning like you know kind of like what you're doing with like you would do now with like 5s and kaizen projects whatever and like map out what like people are doing and value stream mapping and all that it was cooked in from you know the old Lincoln from that built this place in the fifties, and it was very forward thinking and very interesting. And if you worked at Lincoln Electric, especially in like the seventies, eighties, you made a shit ton of money because mm-hmm. one is you would make a lot of money per part per piece, and then you know there's a game there, so you're playing a game with the company if you're a worker there. And let's say they put in new parts into your work center, right? You give them you show is the most efficient way to make something and they'll be, they have time study and then they have, what are they called? That's the position I moved to. I can't even think of the name of it. Basically it's like an applications engineer. They all oh, methods. They call it a methods engineer um, in, in their parlance. And basically you figure out the best way to do something in that cell and you document how they need to do it. You set the speeds and feeds that you, you know, make sure the program's right. You, you know, design all the fixturing, do all the application engineering stuff. And then you set the operator and show them exactly how to do that part. Then you bring in time study. Time study comes in and, and, it's, and it is collaborative between like the methods group and machinists because especially at Lincoln and more things they learn is in that, in that methods unit there, you know, there might be one machinist methods guy, then there's an assembly methods guy, whatever. And if you got like, a new project coming in, you got like 10 different parts that you have to figure out how to do. You have to rely on the machinist to help you get those things going in, a, in an efficient manner to where you, you know, you're not getting yelled at by your boss. So 
as you rely on these machinists, which is fine. And you, we all know you're playing the game because usually if you were, if you're in methods group, you were a machinist that showed some, you know, ability and they moved you into that group, right? So you know how the game's played. How the so game is played is sandbag the shit out of you it. Sandbag <laughs> as much as you possibly can. Yeah. To so then when they walk away and they release the job for production, you do all the things, you know, maybe write a new program or, you know, use different tools or whatever the hell you're doing. But then the documented way is the way that the company's happy with. And it's documented. Everything's documented and it's, you know, down to like, you know, how you move the fixturing around the speeds and feeds of, and how long that tool lasted in the cut. I mean, it's all there. Um, and you save all that as an operator. So that way, if they ever came out to reevaluate, you just go back to the old way and just do it that way. Or if they hire somebody new and that person, you know, disappeared, like they have it all documented, which is good. If you're a good operator though, you get in there, you make your own setup sheets, you make your own way of doing things, and then you are getting paid a hell of a lot more money, right? Because it's, you know, based on a, it's a conversion rate. It's interesting. It's a conversion rate that gets, that gets evaluated every year there, which I thought was very interesting too. And so it's called a Lincoln dollar. And what does a Lincoln dollar equal? Well, it depends on two things. One is what they say that conversion rate is to the outside market. So, I don't know. Let's just say the Lincoln dollar really close to the railroad stuff. (laughs) It is. So a Lincoln dollar is let's say $20 an hour. Right. And then they would put a base rate that was called your Lincoln dollar. Then your machine, your work center would have a base rate signed to it. Meaning that a Lincoln dollar is this level of expertise kind of tied to it. And a base rate kind of tied how, experience you needed to be to run that machine so it'd be like 0.90 or 88 or 76 and that's like 88 cents an hour is of lincoln dollars is what you're going to make on that machine is what they're aiming for 90 cents on this machine is a lincoln you know is what they say you can make on this machine in that time and in lincoln dollars 20 dollars, and you do the math and you know 90 cents is you know whatever 18 bucks or 19 bucks And it was very interesting system. And actually I think it's actually a very good system until it gets abused. And then, you know, (laughs) yeah, then it's a problem. But, but back to what I'm saying back in the day, dude, there was, so there was profit sharing too. So it was employee owned profit sharing. It was a very good company to work for. So if you made the improvements piecework system in there and you know, you were, you could make 130% of what you were technically supposed to be making. And there was no way, you know, before computers for them to track all that crap. Right. So people were making very good money and that was fine because they base the price of what they're selling their items at based on that time study they did. Right. So they don't really necessarily care that there is money being made by employee, which I think is actually pretty wonderful. Yeah. And then on top of it, there was profit sharing. So that means all the extra profits they made at the end of the year, you know, that would be and everything. And then they would carve off some for, you know, future development, whatever they would, um, bust that out between all the employees. And then, so again, on top of it, they have this whole system of evaluating employees, you know, I think it was twice a year and it was, you know, and that number dictated your bonus. So if the bonus amount was, you know, um, whatever it was that, you know, $20,000 or let's just say person, whatever, but then whatever you were allotted, let's say if you were a perfect employee, you were allotted $20,000 because, you know, you performed at a hundred percent. 
and it was by valuation. It was very subjective. It wasn't really based on much of anything. As long as your boss liked you a lot, you probably got better numbers than others. I mean, there was some kind of, you know, math to it and whatever and bullshit, but, um, you, or if you did really good or you saved the company a whole bunch of money and you know, you're a good old boy, you might get 120% of $20,000 and you know, you, you know, do it that way or 137%. When my first year I got actually my second year, I got 137% um, oh bonus, and it's, it, crazy. which is great. And so like, you know, that so was bonus, exactly what you needed. Like you were looking for a good exactly. paying job uh, yeah. and yes. you got a good paying job. Right. Immediately. It, I had to work my ass off because you are working your ass off there to get that money because marveled at it and it really sticks with me still to this day like i they had that monarch so the work center was that monarch mill that was doing the work you know uh, milling or whatever but then i had a four spindle drill press next to that thing and i was doing some of the work to finish that part outside the monarch and timing it up to where that work was happening at the same time the monarch does. So, you know, as the cycle time was, ha- you know, it's basically cellular manufacturing with multiple spindles, but I was one of the spindles technically. Right. Mm-hmm. And I just marveled. I'm like, this is like, I really like thinking about, it. I'm like, wow, that's genius. Like throw a manual machine, especially like before I started learning about automation and, you know, robots and stuff, but it's like, this is a very smart thing to do to make sure you're maximizing your output as on the employee side. And also as a, on the, on the, you know, company side. So it was because right, you're not running down the clock there. Like if you're on right. the clock, you're make you're trying to make as much money as you right. can. Exactly, it's great for both parties. Yeah, right, that, right. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah. yeah would you was, would you consider that welfare capitalism? I you think I actually quite like the system. To be honest with you, yeah. I, I'm still wrapping my head around it. Like well, I don't mean like welfare capitalism be, is a good thing. No, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like I'm still wrapping my head around. I th- overall, I think in. If it had the, again, like everything else, like capitalism in general, like as long as you have the right construct around it and controlled in some sort of way, like it can't be, I don't think it can be unfat. Un, I mean, I don't want to piss anybody out, but I don't like you need to have some kind of controls because there are nefarious people that will destroy that system, system for their own yeah. Yeah. benefits. And that was happening inside Lincoln Electric. Because sure. if you look at Lincoln Electric bonuses, if you can imagine, because a lot of my, I have old time friends that, that I'm still good friends with that retired from Lincoln when they were 20 years ago, like I'm saying like late seventies, even before they became more of a, you know, before ago. basically computers took over and before, um, before computers took over and before, um, they became like a publicly traded company. Right. Um, there was it was called bonus day so every, december 6th or 12th is bonus day at lincoln electric still a big thing still a big deal and that's when you get your bonus check and they announce the rate and you know how well the company's done and everybody just kind of just watches from different teleprompters through the whole fact the multiple factories about how well the company did and at the very end they say and this year's you know bonus rate was you know whatever the number was you know 70 percent of profit or 68 percent of profit and i'm and, sure every gun sh- shop and car dealership and bar in so a 50 yeah. mile radius imagine, knows bonus day <laughs> yeah. exactly imagine this in the 70s the dealerships for cadillacs and so forth would be parking cars out in the parking lot and then 
when they walked out with a check, they would parking lot of Lincoln of Lincoln. They would yeah. they would bring <laughs> they would in drive like, the cars. <laughs> they would drive the cars into. Yeah, they knew it. That's that's beautiful. People oh would walk God. out with checks so big at that time that they would buy the car. They would get the money back. <laughs> have tens of thousands of dollars more money and then you know go and do you know like insane amounts get, of money that's go, nuts. yeah at, at a certain drunk. point in their heyday one of the things they read because they mit or i don't know harvard business review did a whole workup on you know lincoln electric and the way that that company was running at the time um they had more um more college level the bachelors on their shop floor just running machines than any other company because teachers could make more money there or if you you know anything you were doing you can make more money just running a freaking machine at lincoln electric at that time you know that's uh, insane insane it wasn't that good for another thing too is you did have to pay for your own medical they paid for the medical all year but then they would pay back the company the medical out of your bonus so that would come off the top first not a big deal when it's only, you know, a thousand dollars or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a little different as, especially as, you know, in my years, you know, the medical for my family was, you know, I don't know what it was, but it was a significant amount. So it wasn't a thousand dollars. No, it wasn't a thousand dollars. But, but, you know, like I said, like my second year, I got like 137% of whatever the bonus was. Like I did very, very well. And they quite liked me. And I must have sucked it. Well, anyways, yeah, um, you said who's a good boy, and you yeah, said I'm who's a, a good, good boy. boy. I'm a good boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, then, how long were you there? I was there on and off. Actually, I was there. I think overall. So I think I started there in 2016, or no, that's when I left was 2016. So I had to be like 2004. So I was probably there eight years. I did take a stint away because another thing. I mean, you work your ass off, right? At Lincoln Electric, you're working the entire, like you're working to get your money. And then on top of it, they did a swing shift thing, which was killing me. So every other week you had to switch shifts. So one week oh. you're on first, next week you're on seconds. And then if you happen to have three guys in your cell, you would be first, second, thirds, and it would switch every week. Every week? Yes. That's rough. That's super, super rough. Super rough, especially when it's mandatory overtime and you're working 60 hours a week. So you're working Saturday to 12 and then you got to show up again. Yeah. You know, or if you're coming in at 12 and you're leaving at five and then you got to, that's the worst one. When you're going from second to first, because you work afternoon Saturday to like five, because it was only like a half day because they were so nice to you. You would get Sunday off, but then you would have to be back at work and we, at six in the morning and started first shift. So it was you very, you can't get used to anything. No, like you can't become a morning or a night person because you have to be both every other week. Right. It's yeah. so ass. Right. So, um, I left there for that particular reason. And then, and I wanted, you know, and a couple of guys left there to go to this place around the corner, which was born out of TRW, which was a lot of Naval nuclear and, and so forth. It's called Babcock and Wilcox high-end naval nuclear stuff very interesting um i went into there and i worked there for a year and i and it was a union shop first time in a union shop i think unions are incredibly important my dad um when i was 16 finally got a good job at ford and retired from ford actually this year and the union um is a very very good thing for i i feel for the country however because of how i'm made and how i want to work it damn near killed me um to be in that kind of environment so at b and w i learned a, 
Blink Electric, I learned a lot there. I learned in that first stint, you know, all the different things. And again, a lot of problem solving and it's trying to come up and it was just constantly thinking about better ways to do things, right? Like, man, if I could figure a way to do this a little bit better, I get more money. Like it was a very, very good feedback loop, especially for my brain. Um, However, the downside of that is once you find out like the most optimum way, you just need to be a robot and do it that way. And I have ADD and it is very hard for me to do the same thing the same way all day long. It kills Mm me. Yeah. You're like, I'm bored. Okay. What's next? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Like it just kills me and I'm making the same parts all night long. And I, and I found the best way to do it with the tools that are available to me. And I would start doing things just to do things different just to keep my mind. And that was not good. Like there, you know, it was just. So obviously you go to a union shop where you can just change things all the time. time. Oh yeah. Without without any issues. No, no innovation. No, they love it. (laughs) They freaking love it there. They, They love it. They're like, so, Jason, we love your work ethic. Don't do anything with that. <laughs> dude, oh my gosh. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I go to B&W. Very, that's opened my eye up to good machines and they had new technology and they were willing to spend and bringing in, which I never even thought of, like bringing in tooling reps to talk about the new tooling tech and all this, you know, kind of kind of garbage, which was all like, I'm like, oh, this is actually how you do things. And, you know, this is amazing. And again, though, I, because of my background and whatever, they threw me on a, um, the first job. It's very nice now looking back at it, but it's not what I wanted. Like I wanted to be on, they had these massive Akuma, um, CNC mills or horizontals and they were very nice. And they did like, you know, they had heat shrink tooling and the dude that was programming, like did all this cool macro stuff, which I never even got into macros yet. And he's using that, like, even if like he's using it which I thought was so profound at that moment was you throw, and I didn't even know about probes or anything. Like I didn't know that was a, you know, was something that, I mean, I knew about them, but I didn't know like how they would work or whatever. So you would, he would have a very detailed setup, like, cause it was all Naval nuclear and it was all billable hours to the freaking Navy. It was very laid out. Like you did exactly how he wanted it, torqued down the things exactly how he wanted it. You would then send in the, fixture with nothing in there no parts just send the fixture in and it would go in and you would run a sub program and it would probe everything and see and it will tell you how far off you are on the setup and then as long as you were within a version of what he said was the window that you could be okay in it would then dump in a whole bunch of macros and then just change everything in the program to compensate for your half degree off or your that's whatever cool. And then That's he would, and then he would call that every day or whatever and redo it, and it was just really super impressive. I'm like, I want to be that guy when I grow up. Oh, and you, uh, you did it. Yeah, well, I don't know if I did it because that guy is still. I mean, I got away from the technical stuff. I really, you know, a little more. But, anyways, there I got thrown on a manual machine. <laughs> of course, uh, yeah, yeah. But it it was really good though. It was I learned. What I learned was like, they don't give that job to anybody because what you're doing is you're putting the most critical thread on a shaft. So if you think of a nuclear engine, a nuclear sub engine, basically the way it works is they pull out this rod or they adjust the diff, the distance on this rod based on this thread. And that's how much fusion is happening inside the thing. And they can stop it by moving that down and moving it up, right? And the way that, um, so that thread is 
incredibly important and it's a very, very, very tight thread. And you have to, um, and the only way they can do it because they already put all this work into this huge titanium rod and they put these huge scallops in and it's like, I don't know, freaking 10 feet long. So oh, there's geez. a whole bunch of money in there. And the last thing you do is the thread. And so mm. being incredibly anal and making sure you do a very good job on that thread is, you know, incredibly important to this thing. So them trusting me with that, I thought was pretty cool. Um, it sucked though, because it was very hard. And then you actually had a, I actually, if you know, like we called it blunting a thread where you take that first thread, mm-hmm. that's kind of a stringer and you actually grind it down, file it down by hand and make it like a little rounded part. So it's like just perfect and then you have to do the yeah, same right. thing on the backside yeah. and sit there with a freaking a jewel in your eye and just sitting there and making sure it's perfect and so i'm doing that job and you know i, I think uh, i i finally got turned loose on it right and i'm starting to learn about the union world and how you just don't do anything without permission and you don't do more than anybody else ever um there's a set cadence to everything and if you can't work in that cadence too bad. So sad. You know, you got to work in that cadence. That cadence did not work for me. So I, I was too fast. It turns out, and I thought yeah. I was going slow as shit. So <laughs> I would. So you were happy for like what a month, maybe? <laughs> yeah, two? maybe two. Yeah. So I did. Um, the first night I was at my own. I did like, and I and you have to write down like what you do, and you type it into the computer or whatever. And I I did like six all night eight hours did six parts and it only if i was doing it in my pace it would seriously only take me like 20 minutes to do a part and i only did six for eight hours i'm like all right and the other thing about this place it was because it was so because it's a union shop the union workers versus the um office workers was like such a contention and so there was rules like you couldn't read the paper or anything at your machine. You couldn't do, you couldn't have anything out, you know, and then you couldn't do anything. Like you just had to either be working or that was it. So what people, and the only place that you could get away from is you go to the bathroom. So I, you know, probably developed hemorrhoids from sitting on the freaking toilet, for, <laughs> you know, sneaking a paper in my back pocket. That's what everybody did. That's what you did. And yeah. I'm like, this is horrible. <laughs> right. I yeah. totally went the other way, way too far the other way. On, on yeah. this. And, so but yeah. another learning experience of exactly what you don't want to do. Exactly. And so I did the six parts, came in the next day, you know, doing shift changeover. And you talk to the guy that, you know, the guy that ran before you. And he's like, you're killing this job. I'm like, what? He goes, I only get four a day. You don't do six a day. Oh, if you do wow. six a day, they're going to expect you to do six a day. We're going to expect us both to do six a day. I'm oh. like, I'm like, all right you know, sorry. And, you know, just kind of fall in the line or whatever, but, it, but that, yeah. So that slowly was just killing me on the inside. I mean, I think I was there for honestly, like a year maybe. And then I went back to Lincoln. So I had a good relationship with Ken Walters. I was saying the foreman there and, um, oh, it was no, their methods, man. The methods man was actually signed to the freaking group. I don't even know what the hell the name of the, whatever the application engineering group was. The methods man is actually problem solver that is tied to a the machine group works hand in hand he's the right hand man of the foreman of the group and they you know he just goes out there and puts out fires as crap happens or whatever um and i became really good friends with him greg duggar actually and we're still friends to this day 
they needed a applications guy because the guy that was there got you know promoted up and then the guy that they brought in from outside lost his damn mind and couldn't handle the job because it's not for everybody obviously um in that kind of environment so they needed applications engineer and Duggar and Kenny thought of me and reached out to me and I'm like yeah I would Please. definitely come back and do something like that right because that sounds and it would be just first shift and I would be working on you know interesting higher level things interesting things like that and just jumping around on different machines doing different programming and all the stuff and so that was great so I did that for a few years or up until 2016, basically, when I said, when I had my twins. So I had a, my daughters just turned 13. I had her in 2005, a couple of years after, no, I'm sorry, 2010, five years after Danielle and I got married. And then finally settling down and figuring out, like, you know, our medical stuff and getting a handle on Danielle's medical things and just living the Ohio life of, you know, you, you have a house, you have a kid, and you live in a, you work in this job that you just die in, basically. But I always had that thing of like, I just need to do something. Like I'm very opportunistic and, and wanted to do something more. But I was always, you know, a little risk averse, like you were saying, Dylan, with, you know, especially with my wife and stuff. But in 2016, I broke. Um, we got pregnant. We were thinking about having another kid. We weren't sure if we're going to have him. We're going to have one more. Well, we decided that um, we're going to have twins, I guess. <laughs> so I had twins coming. So I had three kids coming in. And I just had, and I was having a hard time at Lincoln, actually, because I was in a group and we were working hard on a project of bringing the last project I worked on there. We brought in three Morisaki triple turret laves into one cell, tooling everything up with Capto. It was very cool and very much I loved it and doing that project and just laying everything out and then pumping through what we did within a year, pumped through 200 parts into that area for cost savings. So 200 existing parts, we, my group programmed, got those machines up and going, programmed them all, got good parts bought off and got them all time studied, like incredibly, Jeez. a lot of work incredibly fast. And I'm very actually proud of that How in, a, long? in an environment that was very difficult for me at that moment because the, the guy that was actually running the project and I, we were kind of friends and then he was just an ass and like, this is a doctor's note guy. Yeah, doctor's note guy. <laughs> yeah, um, that's like four parts a week. Yeah, I mean we were cranking, man. And so I and we brought in a spree. Like we never, had, they never had cam software there, even at Lincoln Electric. So because it was all you know Mazatrol. That's their that was their thing in between. So they did everything at the controls, and that's what I was doing. I was doing everything at the controls on Mazatrol. They didn't even have the option to drop in G code in the Mazatrol. They didn't pay for that option, so I had to figure out how to do all this crap in Mazatrol and whatever. So I mean, I'm not super surprised that the company that still had a tape machine in the 2000s <laughs> didn't have cam in the right, 2010s. But right. <laughs> the justification, of, like that's another thing that I learned too. Like the justification of bringing in just those three Morries into a company as big as Lincoln, we had to just we had to spend a year justifying that cost. We had to go through the cost savings, show everything, do it again, do it again. What about these machines? And they're paying me and another engineer and this the boss guy you know the guy ahead of me all this money to do all this work of just theoretical bullshit to get it to where the bean counter you know would approve the power account basically the purchase acquisition and of just those three machines i mean it was still you know like 
two million dollar you know or 2.5 million dollar purchase or whatever but the amount of work that went in to make that decision which to everybody in that was a machinist or knew anything about engineering or manufacturing knew it was like it's a no-brainer you just do this you know but we had to justify it and that killed me and it's like oh man you spent we spent so much money just traveling around looking at different machines and doing all this crap it's like we could have just pulled the trigger and just been done with this and making money but anyways that's how it is in big companies right um, which sucks so you're having these twins then what yeah so happened? i'm having twins i'm having existential crisis because i'm like oh man i gotta pay for college for three kids and i was actually going back to college then too so that's when i got my degree and so i'm going to school at night working during the day and then i still had the mentality of the way I'm going to get ahead is by getting a degree and getting a higher position. And then I was actually chosen, which again was very nice from Lincoln Electric to be in their future business leaders program. So they're actually sending me a couple of days a week to a, a business school to learn because they, you know, they, they had me pegged to basically become something bigger in the company, which was very nice um, to be thought of that way. It's just a lot going on there. So, um, and then I, again, I was having a hard time with my boss. Um, was just sick of Ohio period. I'm having twins and yeah, my brain broke. Like that's when I, I remember very distinctly that day I was, <clears throat> and I'm sorry if I'm going so long here. Um, no, not at all. Okay. It's an interesting story. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I Chris is by board cause he's heard all this before, but, um, I didn't even get to the good stuff yet, guys. No, I I'm, died. I'm, yeah. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. We we're, we're, I'm, I'm on bated breath. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, I remember it distinctly. I was, uh, the, the twins came home and me and my wife are trying to deal with trying to take care of two kids at once. And, you know, I had work and everything. It's not like you have paternity leave at Lincoln and trying to relieve. Cause you know, once you feed one kid, the other kid needs fed. And then it starts again every two hours or, you know, four hours. But by the time you get done feeding two kids, it's already two hours. And you only got like a two hour block. Anyway. So Danielle and I were pulling shifts, you know, trying to get her some sleep. I'm trying to get some sleep and I'm still in school too. And you know, all this craziness. And I remember very distinct. Um, and then I had a hernia, I had a, a stomach hernia, part of oh a umbilical hernia. So my belly button was kind of coming out and, <laughs> and I was pushing Four. it back in. <laughs> That's and, foreshadowing. Yeah, for, oh, that's, yeah, that's some foreshadowing. <laughs> and so I had a surgery coming up, and I just was just so anxious about leaving Danielle and being down for a few days with the surgery. And I'm standing above my kids, and they both need their diapers changed. And I'm looking at them both, and all this is just all this is hitting me right. And I go over to my wife Danielle, not finishing changing the kids' diapers, and I said, I can't do anything right now. I got to go lay down. And I just shut down and, you know, I, I had a panic attack, anxiety attack. And this is the first time really it got that bad. I always have anxiety being an Ohio boy. You always think you're the worst person in the world. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, immediately though, luckily immediately she's like, yeah, okay. You know, go lay down, freaked her out. And immediately the next day I like, I got to go see a psychiatrist and, and figure out what's going on. So, which was good. And it was basically, you know, general anxiety disorder and just, you know, in my head with all these things and just things finally, you know, building up to a point where I couldn't cope with them anymore in a way that didn't, you know, involve uh, food, which is another foreshadowing thing. The way I deal with stress is food. Um, cause I never drank at this point or, you know, did any of those things like that was right. my way of dealing with things was food. 
Um, nothing makes a hernia better than food <laughs> exactly, and anxiety. Right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, at that moment, I'm like, all right, let's make a change. Let's make a big change. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, quit. And Lincoln at the time was doing bad. The 2016, I, th- I don't know if the economy was doing bad or if just Lincoln was doing bad. But they were doing buyouts. So if you were offered, if you would leave your job, they would give you a portion of money and just say, you know, give you a portion of money and give you some benefits for, you know, six, seven months or whatever it is. And you can just go do your own thing. Right. Basically like early retirement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Buying you out. And so that was being offered at that time. And I talked to my, my boss's boss about what's the potential of me, you know, getting that buyout. And he said, pretty good because me and my boss were bumping heads and having a very hard time with each other. And so they were probably ready to get rid of me. Uh, in that aspect. So Danielle and I talked about it and we're like, and his, her sister was living in Arizona. I'm like, let's sell it. Let's get out of here. Let's move to Arizona. It was enough money and we had enough savings or whatever. And let's just see what happens. She agreed shockingly. So we packed up, took the buyout, um, took our savings and we left and went to Arizona and rented a house next to her. Her sister didn't have a plan as far as job. My plan was to build an app for the iOS store for machinists. I was all, I'm always into tech and computer stuff and all that stuff is my hobby and what I like to do. And I would build computers for a while there and discharge machining days and so forth. When eBay first came on board, I was making a lot of money um, selling computer parts, buying computer parts, selling computer parts and building computers for people. And that, you know, before geek squad and all that i was making a actually an okay side hustle doing that kind of stuff um there's some great irony of the guy pigeonholed as a manual machinist being so heavily into tech i know yeah, yeah crazy <laughs> um so so huge in, and then doing program make doing little programs on the side and mostly just game editing i'm big into video games and just doing like you know any file editing or finding you know ways to break the game basically unreal tournament was a big one for me you can get in there and do things and so i i was I always wanted and i glorified and again and another big huge thing with me is podcasts and i was there at like day one whenever you know whenever the ipod came out i think i had enough money i bought an ipod and i saw the thing where it said podcast i'm like what the hell's a podcast and the only podcasts that were happening at that moment at least that i could find were um technology podcast which was perfect like so i got into twit like this week in tech with leo laporte and then i you know he had guests on his show and then he had other shows and i started listening to mac weekly because i was really in that mac stuff whatever so um getting to a point where i'm following these nerds that are doing programming and you know whatever i'm like i think i can do that and that's one of the things i'm starting to learn that i can't do everything at that time up until i died which is coming (laughs) Um, I thought I could do anything like I would see other people doing things and I'm like, give me a, like, maybe, I don't know if that's narcissistic or what it is, but I don't think I'm a narcissist at all. I think I'm a very humble person, but in my head, I'm like, I can do anything. Like, just give me a little time. If I have the time, I can do that thing. Even if it's surgery, you know, like whatever. And uh, I think that that's a mindset that is pretty common in machinists. Like I've said many times to many customers, with enough time and money, I can do anything you want. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. yeah. 
One of my uh, favorite quotes is actually from a podcast I listened to called John Saracusa, who uh, founded the Hypercritical Podcast and used to do the massive Ars Technica OSX OS review every year up until he you know stopped doing it a few years ago. Um, his was like on an infinite on an infinite time scale, anything's possible. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So um, I started building an app and actually I was just checking cause I haven't, you know, if you don't pay the Apple connect fee every year of $90 to become, you know, to stay as an Apple developer, they shut down. If you have an app open, they'll shut it down up until just recently. And actually I'll turn it back on here now that I looked at it. Cause I was going to, you know, the app's called machine. It is very basic ass app. I was learning, um, Swift programming language just came out then. And so I'm like, well, I'll do it in Swift because, you know, they had Swift playgrounds. And so I bought a couple books on Swift and then delve into just making an app. Never did it before. And I'm like, well, what I'm going to make, I'm going to make a tool for machinists because that's kind of what I know. So it was basically a very, very simple app called Machine It. And what that app did was it, well, I still have it on my phone because I actually still use it daily. Um, and a lot of you know, some, not a lot, but people that never, if you, if, if it's in your thing, I think you're still allowed to have it. Um, even if it's not in the store right this moment, anyways, it's a very, very simple app. It would do SFM to RPM, RPM to SFM conversion based on diameter. Cause I was doing that constantly and you can get it in metric or inches and then it would do conversions. So up until, you know, now it's no big deal, but before I had a hard time doing, you know, six millimeters, 236, you know, thou, you know, you just kind of learn that thing. So this would do the, that conversion for you. Then it had the, a trig chart in there. Cause I was doing a lot of grinding and stuff and needed to know like trig angles and, you know, sign plate stuff. Cause I was doing manual stuff. So that was, had a right angle problem solver and then the drill chart, which is basically drill sizes, tap sizes, you know, just scroll through. That's all it was. But it was very rewarding to actually, you know, go through the process of, you know, you have to build a company, you know, form a company and do all that stuff to, so Apple accepts you. And then you got to figure out how to, you're going to get paid and, you know, figure, and you just do all that businessy stuff aside from then programming and learning how to make an app and then testing it out on different, it was all, it was all good. So that's what I did for, I don't know, two or three months. And I launched the app and I was charging, you know, I don't know, three bucks or something. And some people bought it mostly like, you know, my dad, my mom didn't cause she was dead, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, other friends and stuff, but, um, it was a fun experience and I'm like, all right, well, what am I going to do next? And then the savings started running out. I'm like, well, I gotta, gotta find a, gotta get a jobby job. Right. And so I started applying now again, like what you were saying, Dylan, all right, I've been through a union shop. I've been through, you know, a, a high end or not high end, but a high productivity shop, the highest productivity shop I've ever been in, in Lincoln electric. Um, that's not what I want to do. What I liked doing was what I was doing at the end of Lincoln, which was applications engineer, figuring out, you know, and setting up things and what's available with my skill set out in, you know, in Arizona. I don't, I don't know. So I'm not sure how it came to be for me. I don't know if I just saw it on a, you know, you know, a board or whatever and just applied for the job, but I applied for methods, machine tools in Arizona. They needed an apps guy. And at the time, Zap was the manager of the apps guy. He just got that position. So I interviewed with Zap and the boss at the time, Bob Nakish. 
about coming on board there to help Zap do the stuff that he was doing. So, Chris, maybe you could talk more about that a little bit there yeah. so that I can take a drink. I didn't realize yeah. you guys knew each other this long. Oh, we know each yeah. other for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, oh. yeah. And so a little context there is that he, Jason was my third apps engineer. Um, not like that I had three at one time. He would like, I had one, I think his, I think I had this guy named Darren who I, who got hired before I took the position and he was a drug addict, like prescription drugs, like legit Monday morning, Friday afternoon, you would be like standing, talking to him and his eyes are like rolling in the back of his head. Oh, um, geez. We, we went down to uh fuck. I can't remember the name of the shop, but it's a Swiss shop in Tucson. And so I picked him up and we drove down to Tucson. He slept the whole way down there and was just like, and like was falling asleep on the machines and like just pick it, just like rifling through stuff at the, at like their parts and stuff. Oh and, my he, God. and everybody, everybody was like, Bob, you got to fire this guy. Like this was before his 90 days was up. It was like, Bob, just cut our losses. This is no good. Bob didn't do it. He eventually got into a single car wreck on the, on the 60 where he flipped his car like multiple times, <laughs> broke his broke, like, cause he, he was on drugs. So he, he passed out while driving, broke his, broke his ribs front and back and his back and like punctured his lungs. And then Bob did fire him when he was in the hospital. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, Jesus dude. Okay. Um, so you didn't have three. Jason was the yeah. third through the uh-huh. revolving door. That yeah. was your yeah. 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 I got There's a, the one more was this guy <laughs> in between who was brought to me and he was all right, but he was like also like a druggie kind of like just very twitchy and like really weird. And, um, he eventually got fired because like we all got company cards at methods. They gave us like a green Amex or whatever. And he was like buying like a lot, his like washing machine and his, and his like all this other stuff. But, and he wasn't, which is like fine to do if you pay it off. Cause you're personally responsible for it, but he wasn't doing that. And so, and like, he never had money. And then, so that's how he got fired. So at like this last one, I'm like, Bob, I am, I am doing this myself. And, but like Bob was really hot to hire somebody. And the first guy, his, his email that Bob was like, I'll fly this guy in right now from like the Midwest or something. That was and me. no, that it was, wasn't you. Oh, it wasn't, no, it wasn't you. Oh, no, 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 I no. talked to Bob the, in Ohio for a moment. Yeah. No, yeah. this we because we talked about this. No, the yeah, first guy okay. had a had an email address on his resume that was like pray hard at aol.com <laughs> or something. And he was like, I'm a seventh day Adventist, so I can't work on Friday afternoons or something, but I'll work second shift. And it's like, I was like, Hold on, do you even know what we do? And he was like, <laughs> There is no. no second shift, and buddy. he's like, It's methods. Yeah, yeah, he didn't know what we do, what we did. And it's yeah. like, man. Which is, which is like, I can forgive you for like not knowing what like a contract manufacturer does specifically. And like, but it's like, we, yeah, we sell machines. Like that's all there is to it. So then that's when that's, and I'm going through resumes and I see Jason's and Bob, Bob almost didn't give it to me 
he like he was like I almost threw it in the trash because it was it was poorly written to whoa shots fired <laughs> yeah we, we've talked about this. no I, no I, yeah I, I'm yeah. just kidding yeah it <laughs> was agree. like it took like like and a little like added I didn't context. read the room like what yeah. are you you're applying added, for this job. Why are you throwing all this crap in there? And you're like an expert in manual machining. No, dude, can no. turn threads it on was, nuclear subs. It was mostly on like programming. It was apps, yeah. And, you know? Oh, geez. and Bob Bob Nakash is like one of the best bosses I had. But he was like mile a minute. Like so, he's just like speed reading these things. And he almost threw it in the garbage because it's like, yeah, Python, Swift, this, that, the other, blah, blah, blah. But then you like, you get like the little keywords in there. Esprit, we use Esprit. Triple turret, Mori, like that's pretty tight. Nakamura's. And then we chat and I'm like, yeah, let's like, it was awesome. And then we, we hired him obviously. And I think we only worked together for like a few months, but we did some cool shit. Yeah, we had a, yeah. I mean, so Chris- um, that's when really I started diving into and, and really methods opened a world up to me of the possibilities of what this industry can do. Like, so I had a very good solid base of, I can make parts, you know, obviously manual machining. I can, I can program maze of troll. I can dabble in a spree. I, I mean, I did many things, but I didn't, and I knew of all the technology at this point, but I didn't really have my hands on with everything I wanted to do, right? And, or see, was really interesting is seeing how other shops ran or how other shops did things. And that was the most fascinating thing to me about the job. So Chris, yeah, he left. Chris, what I started, what Chris started me on there, because Chris was getting big into it at that moment, was macros and doing a lot of stuff with macros. And then I, he was showing me things and it was very, very interesting to me. Um, and yeah, so Chris and I hit it off great. Chris was a little trepidation about hiring me too. I remember in the interview he hired me, he's like, because Chris is obviously younger than me, and he's like, and I guess you know he had some the, issues before with the someone else. Other, the other two guys were both like twenty years older than I was, and it was a huge problem. Yeah, like, that they're taking you know they, taking orders from a kid or whatever. Yeah, and they both sucked. Like mm-hmm. they deserved it, but yeah. it was it was such a problem. For both of them, so he asked me if that was going to be a problem. Like, no, actually, I'm I'm fine as long you know, as long as you're not a dick. Yeah. So this is what 2017, 2018, 2016. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, 2016. So then, yeah, Chris left that job to go do his California thing, Um, and so then I got moved into Chris's role as the manager. But I was the only. Then I hired this guy that I JD, who I, I I like him as a. As a guy, he was definitely behind the curb as far as what needed to be, um, what you I needed to Dylan, do the job. What's I that? Think Dylan knows JD. Oh. Do I? I uh, think you've met him. He's the Daytron salesman. Right. Oh yeah, we we've big, talked on the phone. Big oh, red, talked on the big phone. red. He's a good guy. Um, yeah. Great guy. Um, but you know, I brought him in. He was green definitely for that position. But I thought you know he could definitely be something that we can groom him into. And I like, you know, basically when I hire people, even when I hire them now for my company, uh, the thing I tell everybody in the interview, like, I don't hire assholes. Uh, I don't care if you're the best in whatever you think, you know, whatever I need. Like if you're the best programmer in Esprit, but you're an asshole, not hiring you. I rather hire Mm -hmm. someone that doesn't know Esprit very well or is willing to learn Esprit 
that can work with my group. That seems to be the most important thing that I've learned. So, right. um, yeah, you can train somebody to be a machinist. You, it's really hard to train somebody to not be an asshole if they're already there. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And doing what I do, especially now with the startup and everything, like I don't have time to suffer fools. Like I got to go. I need to know that everybody's going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to maybe lead my team down a wrong path. I need, I need from, I need them to understand that it wasn't done on purpose and that I'm not a jerk about it, you know, and, and that they're not going to be, you know, jerks about it in return and then use it as an excuse to slow down the progress that we still need to make forward. Like, just let's forget about it. Let's move on and go. And that's kind of, you know, what I'm trying to harbor in what I do now. So anyways, and it started with JD um, and, you know, and, and then that was going great. And so I was seeing a lot of different oh. shops and seeing how they implemented things and, and coming from, you know, Lincoln and, and thinking how Lincoln did things and inherently had like five S and stuff just built in. They didn't call it that. It was just kind of built in from the fifties, but then seeing, you know, like what, um, you know, Pearson work holdings doing not him personally, but I'm saying other shops and seeing how other shops do these things and how they have to, uh, in make programs to actually implement those things in a shop because it's just not baked in and, and you know kind of get into the, like the culture of doing these things i just found it so fascinating in arizona and just going through these shops and meeting different things one of the things you'll learn though if you're an applications engineer or manager for a methods group or something like that is if you're competent you are going to get offered jobs all the time to come work for the companies. the time. Because <laughs> they're like, Dude. oh, we need you, you know. And right. they offer you a lot of money to do these things. Can I can I slow you down real yes. quick? Because you're, yep, yep. you're, you're heading into NG2. Mm-hmm. And, yes, but I you am. skipped over the two dope projects you did at Methods while we were working together, which was the Triumph one. Oh, yeah. Uh, the one where that old guy was like, you guys can't fucking, we can't do this. You guys can't do this. Yeah, and yeah. then the other one was the Aceco one, uh, which was, was really cool. sick. That was sick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Talk about talk yeah. about that. The Trump one, I Triumph one was more of a as a work holding. It was thing. a work holding issue. Like they wanted to do something. They they were thinking like if you can make this part for us on a robo drill with our fixture and hit the tolerances we want, we'll buy the robo drill, right? Mm-hmm. And um. They're like, okay. So they gave us a fixture. We programmed everything like yeah, it's easy peasy. And it just was not coming out right. Like we were bringing them over to them. They're like, yeah, the part's bad. And this is why it's bad. So then looking at the data from the their CMM and everything. And then just thinking, I'm like, I'm thinking how I think. I'm like, and learning from my mistakes from what we have all talked about. I'm like, what if the machine's not good? That's one thing. But wait a minute. What if the fixture's not good? What if what they're giving me is not right? And I, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming that I have these tools at my disposal that are right. Right. And that's exactly what's wrong. It was off by like an inch or something. So on the sweep, if you can imagine, like it was um, kind of like a, how would you say it was like a trunnion that was yeah. on a fourth and it would swing. Right. And based on the location of where that thing mounted and where you needed to swing on different directions is how it kind of like, you know, you're controlling like the position of the machining that you were doing and you had to kind of blend, I think between a couple different angles or something. And if that was wrong, that will never be right. And it was mm-hmm. not right by like an inch or something. And I brought it to that old guy and he Chris. had his own tool room and he wasn't, he was definitely an old cantankerous dude. I mean, but he was 
legit like if you could show him that it was wrong like he's you know gonna fix it and he had his own tool room guys and he's like my guys are they couldn't screw that up they they're too good and i'm like i'm telling you man i'm like i don't know but we should probably go through it so we brought it over to him and went through it with his tool and die guys that made this thing they're like oh yeah we fucked up this thing's off a considerable amount (laughs) so that was that was nice but yeah that comes back to like i probably wouldn't ever done that if i didn't go through all the shit i went through right leading up to that point like don't trust yourself or anything else and don't right, trust yeah, customers you gotta know how to break it down yeah don't trust sure. customers because right, right, he right. didn't buy the machine <laughs> yeah and he, he, then he didn't buy the machine anyways yeah. oh and then ace co yeah. was an interesting one because ace co that was does, really cool yeah they're up in idaho and they a company that manufactures many different things one of the things that they were working on and they still make today i think using the thing that we came up with yep is a robo drill with automated lo- reloading robo drill and they were making like like a knife blade, if you can imagine a blade that's about six inches long that's held on both sides. So the ends are stubby and the middle is the blade. So basically you take an end mill and you kind of cut the blade and you roll yourself out. And they would use that, I think, to cut potatoes or something. Yeah. I don't know. I actually what... have some of these in my backpack right now. Really? Yeah. Oh, because you were there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 I do. Mm-hmm. And so it looks, yeah, it looks kind of like this. Yeah. Like yeah. that is, that's basically oh, what they look mm-hmm. like. Okay. But it's very, very thin in the middle because it's a freaking blade, right? And right. they were doing it with grind. I think they may be even still doing it with grinders or they want to switch to grinders. I don't know. But um, anyway, it was very hard for them to control it because you would get very bad chatter or they just couldn't get blade night tight enough. Cause I mean, it's very, it's very small steel. I think it was stainless and it was springy. And it was warping. And it was warping too, right? right? I'm sure it was pushing. Yeah. That, that was the cool thing, what you did with the fixture. Yeah. So what I did was I made the fixture, and this is, again, something I learned at B&W because we had to do a lot of stuff we had to do there and how the guys were attacked when I was watching, like the engineers tackle, they had to do um, very tight tolerances in unrestrained conditions. So you had a mimic in your fixturing an unrestrained condition and learning how to do that right so i took that kind of approach to this where i'm like all right i'm just going to bend the fixture so i cut the fixture at a radius angle and then you take the whole blade and you just bend it to it so that way you are stout the entire way and then when it bounces back out it's just perfectly straight and it works so fucking well (laughs) it's so cool that's awesome it was a cool it was a cool i mean yeah that's cool that you think so highly of that because I, I mean I thought it was cool but I didn't I don't know I just didn't you know I just thought like that's how you solve that problem and now move on to something well that's like because that's one of those things like at that time I was 26 27 you know like I hadn't really had a lot of like shop experience most of it was all was all apps work so it's like I was skeptical of it personally I think we talked about that mm-hmm. Bob didn't think it was gonna work at all and even after it worked, he still didn't think it was going to work. I remember you and I talking to him and him saying some really off the wall shit that was like that where we left. And it's like this guy, he's it's out of this. It doesn't make any sense, yeah. but it uh, it ended up going. And I think they've bought like they still do it that way. Mm-hmm. They've bought like a couple more of those cells. Mm-hmm. Um, I have pictures of one of those. Have I not sent you the new ones? Me? Like I'll send you some pictures. Yeah. I have some pictures of like some of the I never newer was part of the implementation. Built. Like we we proven that we could do it. We showed them how to do it, and I and then soon after that is when I left for NG two. So I never got to see the full on implementation. I knew they, you know, obviously I was still in contact with you know people at Methods, and I knew that they were doing it, but I never got to see the final mm-hmm. thing. You know, 
Oh, yeah. So you've mentioned NG2 a couple times. Mm-hmm. What is NG2, well, NG2 and why do you not leave exist. and all that stuff? Yeah. NG, yeah. So NG2 was a customer of methods. So, uh, uh, and next gen squared, we just called it NG2. They were a upstart suppressor company in Utah in 2016, um, that had very advanced designs for their, um, for their flow through suppressors. So it was like this new flow through technology where you're kind of controlling the gas as it, as it goes. So you're not just stopping it as a traditional suppressor that causes, you know, malfunctions to your gun and blah, blah, blah. So he had this, this guy, Ernie Bray, who is my business partner right now. He had this design um, and he was going around shopping it to machine shops I mean, he's a gunsmith. He knows, you know, manual machining, but, and the, his design was so complicated. Um, he was having a hard time finding anybody to make it. Um, I mean, it was, it was difficult. So he started talking to methods saying, can you make these parts for us? Maybe like turnkey. And he had a lot of money behind him at that moment. Not um, investment money from companies that, you know, are trying to get into that boom of, at that time, it was right when Trump was before Trump got elected. The and I don't know if you know all your listeners know this, but basically in the firearms industry, if there is a a threat from the Democratic Party or threat, yeah, a threat of from the Democratic Party or a perceived threat from the Democratic Party, usually during those years, especially during the Obama years, the firearms industry goes gangbusters. Right when a Republican comes in, that fever of, you know, what potentially could happen dies down considerably to where actually the market actually kind of goes down during Republican years. So it's kind of the opposite of what you would, some people would think, unless you kind of think about it. At the same time, Silencer Co. was the 800 pound gorilla, still is the 800 pound gorilla probably in, in suppressors. And um, they were saturated in the market and they would go into dealers at that time and say, and the dealer, you know, has to buy, they buy it from Silencer Co. or NG2 and then at a discounted rate, then they, you know, market up and sell it. That's how they make money. And Silencer Co. would go in these places and they're like, well, I'll take five of them or whatever. Like, no, if you want to carry our stuff, you're going to take 50 of them. <laughs> Whoa. And, and, you know, you play the game because they were moving. And it's like, okay, well, you know, you do that. Well, so we come into the market, our does, and, and and so they're coming into the market. I guess I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'm still at I'm still at methods. I forgot. Ernie's talking and then contracted with methods to buy machinery and to turnkey these parts and get it up into Utah. Um, and so I'm dealing with Ernie every day on you know specking out that he's changing the designs as we go, which is, you know, obviously Chris knows is very annoying. And, you know, and so I'm trying to, you know, turnkey these parts and we have tight, tight, tight deadlines that the sales guy sold them on and things are changing and it's just tough. But Ernie was a very good guy and still is a great guy. And, um, we were, he was talking to me daily and I'm just like my head, I'm like, who am I handing this off to? That's the other part of this. I'm like, do you have anybody to run the shop or know what the heck to do with these freaking NTM axle, like B axis lays? He bought two of those. He bought two AS two hundreds, you know, 
single turret, but you know, milling with Y and three wire EDMs, a Kiwa horizontal, a five axis Mori. Um, well, a lot of money behind it. A lot of you money. And yeah, that's a lot. And so there's all, and everything need to be turnkey on these things. And, and there was two different devices. One was the, the suppressor. Then the one was the VF 18 or, well, it was called the Muzzle Max at, the, at that point, that iteration of it, which we changed and we don't use it anymore. But anyways, those two products had to do a full turnkey through those machines. And he had no, and he was the one like specking out the shop and buying the air compressors and doing all that stuff. And he doesn't, didn't really have anybody helping him or anybody to lead that group, right? That's scary. And I'm supposed to have this. I think I was supposed to have it done in like a, you know six months or whatever it was. I don't know. It was crazy. So he's talking. He's like, "Well, do you know anybody?" I'm like, "No, nah, not really." And in the back of my head, it was, it was digging at me. Like, I think you want to do this. Like, he was, he was selling me on the dream so hard, and I, and a lot of it didn't come to fruition, obviously. And I learned a lot about that. But he was selling the dream so hard. I actually really, and still do obviously very truly believe in the technology that he comes up with and his ability to patent that technology and that IP, um, that I talked to Danielle about it and I'm like, Hey, I'm thinking about seeing if this might be something you, you know, what do you think of that? And, she was a little trepidation because I mean, really methods is a great job. Like it was very, what I wanted to do on a day-to-day basis. And I mean, I wasn't going to make any more money than, you know, I, but I was doing okay. It was fine. And I was in Arizona. I, I liked Arizona. Danielle hated Arizona. That's probably mm-hmm. one of the reasons that she was okay with us mm-hmm. leaving because it was so freaking hot all the time. So yeah, I, then I said, Ernie asked one day, he's like, do you know, you know, I'm like, you know what? Actually, I do know one guy. And I'm like, I'll, I'll, I think I can do it. And so I went up and met them. I met the, I met Ernie and I met his name's Scott and Scott was kind mm-hmm. of the, the financial, ba- not the financial backer of that comp of NG2 at the time, although he kind of ended up being that. Um, and cause he was the one that brought the money in. Ernie and him are very good friends for a very long time. And when it's Ernie came to him with relationship, <laughs> yeah. When Ernie came to him with like, Hey, I think I figured out how to do this suppressor thing and got all the patents on it. Um, Scott then believed in Ernie cause they've done other business deals in the past that were lucrative that paid off for Scott and so forth. So he was all in and then he brought in, you know, funding from investors and did all that. And they raised a, a ton of money. I moved up, had cart, and that's what interested me. I didn't have any equity in the company at this point. I was just director of manufacturing operations, and I was was just happy to, I was getting a very good pay, and I could mold a shop into any way I wanted, right? And what I was, you know, being sold on was these things are going to take off. We're going to come up with new technology and we're going to, you're going to build uh, the greatest machine shop ever to live. And we're going to support you in anything you do there. And I'm like, freaking wonderful. Yeah, I'm in. So, you know, kind of a very stressful, but a dream job you're building it like, and I'm building a shop from the ground up, you know, so it was fun. But however, it was not fun. It became very, very, very difficult. There was very much, very much. You learn very good things and very bad things. And NG2 was a mix of both, mostly bad, I would say at this point. Um, so 
I get up there. I'm, I'm assessing the the situation. We had a beautiful, like we got a nice building. We're renovating the building. We're doing all these things like, you know, painting the walls, painting the floors. It's like, it's a showpiece. It really is. It became a showpiece uh, for other people to like go see some methods machines until methods had to take the machines back, which is wonderful. It was a great shop. However, it was not the right shop for what we were doing because it didn't have power. So we have two massive NTMXs, two AS200s, three wires, the Mori 5, the Kiwa, the RoboDrill, a massive-ass rotary compressor, and 400 amps of power. Ooh. You can't... So like half of what you needed. Not even, basically. Yeah, basically. I mean, if you ran it, yeah, if you ran it to where the actual load that was kicking out, probably you get away with 800. So we have to do a major upgrade to the facility to bring the power in. And you have, they didn't have the correct power coming from like the, the, the street. So like we had a, the, we had to have the electric company like dig up part of it. And then we had to pay a ton of money to do all this stuff. All the while Trump's getting elected, the suppressor market's tanking big time. Our design's not done really. And I got to go, I got to make something. We got to make this company go. And all this is happening as the investors getting cold feet all of a sudden, like they're like, we oh, put all this no. money in here and they see like, you know, ours, you know, they're seeing that, um, this maybe what they were promised as far as how fast we were going to get going on suppressors. And then maybe they were on the, the, the opinion that the designs were further along and they were just not man- They weren't ready for manufacturability yet or anything really, you know, so there's a lot to do. Um, and so learning that, and I, I mean, I knew that we had to go fast, right? So I'm like, and again, doing what I said, like, I got to hire people that I can trust that I know that can just work with me right now. And so what I did was from Lincoln electric, there was two guys, one guy that was in the, that group when I was working on the, the three Mori thing. And then one of the, uh, guys that I, that was a machinist just in that group his name's Shane. Actually, one of the questions is from Shane. He's the focus for life guy. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. So Shane and then Greg Strick and both wonderful guys. Greg was an old-time programmer guy. He really knows programming. And Shane was a really good operator and wanted to do more. And so, and they're in Ohio though. So I call them up and sell them on the dream of coming out here and doing this thing. And uh, flew them out and, you know, did, did the thing. And they both accepted and they both came out. And so I have two guys from Ohio that believe in me, probably, you know, obviously believe in me more than they believe in X2, which is very nice and humbling. Um, Uprooting their families, coming out to Utah. And then soon after, we start finally kind of getting going. And Shane's doing a wonderful job. Greg's doing a great job. And we're kind of start getting parts off. And I'm solving constant problems. Then the ball starts, the writing starts you know, on the wall starting to happen. Like these investors right, are yeah. kind of getting weird and I don't have the power and I need to go. So you know what I ended up doing? So I ended up running a freaking diesel generator and putting in switch gear that I could, that I ran certain machines off the diesel generator that sat outside that I rented at whatever. And I would, we were paying thousands of dollars a month for, and thousands of dollars in diesel fuel to run two NTMXs or, no, I think I had them hooked up to the AS200s. And then I, we had air conditioning put in the building, but we couldn't use half the air conditioning, but I needed to do some <laughs> of it so I could run the other machines. And it was just this, 
I mean, it was unbelievable. But again, going back to like just solving the problem with what I had, like it was easy. It would be easy enough for anybody to say, ah, screw it. We're just, we're just can't make these parts until you get me power. So we're just shut down. I'm like, I'm always trying, you know, trying, trying, trying whatever we can do and saying, okay, well, if we do this for this much, we can do this. And, you know, so anyways, uh, we did do a good job with that suppressor design. We started shipping them. However, again, we're going into a saturated market where we're trying, our sales guys trying to sell um, into where no one's buying, even though we have the latest and greatest in technology. They're like, that's fine. I just can't buy four year cans until I move all these silencer codes that are sitting on my shelf. So, you know, and then we're being hamstrung on the other side of the investment thing. So we can't even really catch, send out a broad marketing campaign or anything to even move these products. And I'm kind of, and at this point, I'm just seeing all this stuff and inserting myself more um, just to make sure my guys are being taken care of, I guess. It got to the point, obviously, at the end where I was concerned and they were missing, they weren't getting paid or we weren't getting paid. And so I was very adamant and every week I would, or every two weeks I would be on the phone with Scott or with the investor or with whoever to make sure my guys are still going to get paid and just doing that work. And then, and it, it just, it almost, I mean, actually probably definitely attributed to me dying a couple of years later. So that stress and everything. And then it just finally just went away. Like there's just nothing there. As far as that company goes, I actually tried to try to bring in third party work at the end. I actually built another company as a DBA in there called the very good machining company based off of <laughs> the office or off of parks and rec, the very good construction company, Ron, Ron Swanson's. <laughs> um, and I, luckily I had good connections, um, through, um, either other firearms company, other firearm parts that people at that time or other just companies in general. So it was getting some work in there. It just wasn't fast enough, but I did, you know, I could have, if I had like two more months, I think the money, the amount of money I was bringing in would have covered the, at least the, the ongoing costs of the equipment and the people in the shop. However, there was a lot of cost that was, you know, back that, you know, wasn't going to ever happen. Like, you know, not paying the rent for six months or not paying for the machines, you know, and eventually, and then it, that's what came to the final end is like methods. Cause they did not pay for those machines in full. The investor was supposed to never did. Um, they came and, pulled the machines because we didn't pay for them you know so i didn't even have a machine so it was just we owned like two of the machines pull out and ntm both ntmx's everything else was um owned by methods technically still so anyways that kind of just imploded i mean it just we you know it's a startup we tried to do something and, and we just hit the market at a bad time really and right. we had investors that backed out incredibly quick on that and they weren't going to, you know, hold us up anymore. And I don't blame them. It was just, it was just, is what it is. Right. Um, so where do you go from there? So where I go from there is we liked Utah and, um, I needed to find a job because again, I'm, I need to pay for my family, right? I can't not have a job. Um, so I've again, you know, on indeed or whatever found, uh, a really good aerospace shop in Salt Lake City called Paramount Machine. It ran by own own and ran by a guy named Steve Van Orden, who is a phenomenal guy. And I interviewed with him. He came down. I'm like, why don't you come down to my shop and see what I built so you can kind of see what I do, you know? Cause I wasn't gonna take like just a machining position at this point. I'm like, no, I'm I need to be like 
I want to be managing or in charge of something because I like that and I like directing and I just love all that project management stuff. It's kind of really was what I learned and I like, you know, doing that kind of thing. So I brought him, he came down to the shop, you know, and, and yeah. And, um, I brought him, brought him down to the shop and he saw like how clean and you know, how we were doing everything. And he liked, you know, everything that we did, and he couldn't believe, you know, the story of what we did, you know, and how we did it with the diesel, you know, generator and all this crap and my programming expertise in Esprit and, and, and all that. And, uh, yeah, so he offered me a position. He's like, I'm not sure. I remember it was great. He's like, I'm not really sure what I want you to do, but I know you can make me better. So I'm just going to just hire you on faith and we'll just figure it out. Like, you know, kind of just do whatever, you know whatever we can figure it out, we'll, we'll figure it out. It was pretty great. So I got a job there. I then petitioned for him to hire Greg and Shane there too. I'm like, these are great guys. And I was really honest. I mean, they are great guys. They're good workers. Obviously I hired them, but I, I was very much like, I need to make sure these guys find a home too, you know, cause they were losing their jobs in freaking Utah, which they came out for me or, you know, or right. whatever. Yeah. You felt responsible. I for felt them. super responsible. I hope they still know that, but, and so I, uh, I got them jobs there. Greg's actually still there. Shane ended up leaving and going back, back to, well, he's in actually, I'll, uh, where is he at now? I'll, I think Alabama? he's in Alabama. Yeah. He's yeah. in Alabama now, but closer to Ohio where, you know, he has family and stuff. So he, he left Paramount, I think after a year and a half or two years, I was at Paramount for a year and all the while, like Ernie and I are building a relationship. I'm learning Ernie's faults. He's learning. Uh, and I'm learning that I'm very good at taking the good with the bad with Ernie. So Ernie does, you know, he, he'll admit it to, I don't, I'm not speaking out of turn. Like he's got his, he's got what he's really good at. And I got what I'm really good at. And we work very well together. And I know how to work with Ernie, which is an important thing. Like I'm saying, like we don't hire assholes. We've got to work together. So I might not agree with Ernie or he might frustrate me from time to time. And we've had, many of fights, but he's a genius when it comes to the way he thinks about, um, firearms and firearm technology. And then on top of it, he's very, very good at writing patents, defending patents, researching patents and doing all that. Um, what I come in, then he comes up with those ideas and he's got millions of them. He does his work. We just, and, and, and so during that time, we he was working on new designs for the suppressor and new versions of um, the brake design, and <clears throat> and then expanding out into Jack. He was just staying busy doing what Ernie does, right? And I was helping him do some design work and just talk through, like, oh, maybe we should do you know this this way. But it was never like we weren't working as NG two, like we weren't getting paid. It was just me kind of helping out a guy trying to come out with some designs. I was done with all that you know i was like i'm happy with paramount whatever and i don't you know and i you know maybe flew too far to, too close to the sun and i'm like if i do anything again i'm just, i'm doing it myself or i'm going to make sure i'm more involved or you know on a business side of things um so um about a year year or so into he we worked out the designs. He actually, Scott paid for some of the designs to be made for his new suppressor designs. And we farmed them through Paramount so I could 
you know, I can actually do the work, but Paramount got paid for the work or whatever, but at least I can see and program and do all that stuff. All the while at Paramount, what I'm doing there is I kind of ended up in, so I was doing, um, quoting and bringing actually work into them, um, kind of doing that thing and estimating jobs and then troubleshooting and, oh, oh, and I guess I should say too, at that time, Scott owned, Scott owned the NTMX. He's the one that owned the NTMX from the two NTMXs from NG2 and Scott was asking me to find someone to buy those. And so I told Steve, I'm like, well, and Steve's always buying new equipment. He's like, well, yeah, I'm like, buy those. If you hire Shane, put him on them and then I can program them and we can make parts for you. So that kind of, you know, how we got, so that's what I was doing too. And we brought, he bought the NTMXs. We brought them in there and we were, uh, you know, slowly realizing that actually those machines for what he was doing were probably not the best machines. And actually he got rid of, um, actually science Co has them now. But, uh, and he was, he was, Steve was all Mori shop, all Mori loves DMG Mori. I don't know if he loves Mori per se, but he loved the company up there that was, um, new West, new West that was supporting Mori until DMG kind of came in and take over. They did a very good job of supporting him. And that's really the most important thing. If you're buying machines at a high end, when it comes down to it, I think is making sure you get the support you need making, you know. I mean, there's a lot 100%. of things to it, but it's yeah. super important. When the machine goes down, do, yes. does somebody have your back? Right, exactly. Yeah. So um, so that's kind of what I was doing for Steve. I was doing some programming, kind of setting up that cell, setting up those NTMXs, jumping over programming. He had a triple turret and worry that I used to run. You know, the ones that I set up there, he had a little newer version of that, so I was doing stuff there. And then um, there became a problem, and I see this a lot in shops, and is they – they started getting a problem with quality because it's an aerospace AS9100D certified shop. Quality became a bottleneck in the shop of getting parts done. So they needed to get first or local inspections done. And the way the guy that was running that, running his quality department, um, everything needed to go through the CMM, which was, it was just not right because he didn't really have a quality plan built out other than just put everything through a CMM. CMM pumps out a report as long as everything's green then they can run. Well, you can imagine you got all these, you know, machines sitting out there and then there's a queue, there's only two CMMs and there's a queue of all these parts sitting behind that, those two machines. And as they check parts and then they get it back and like, Oh, this is red. And then, you know, um, I'm assuming you guys know how this goes. It's, it's the worst. And so that was a huge bottleneck. That guy ended up getting fired or quit. I, I forget. And he needed someone to take it over. So I took that over and started implementing more of a, a way. And, and the first thing I did, because I wasn't there too long, but the first thing I did in there was I built a little computer um, and built a dashboard website interface to a kiosk inside the quality room. The biggest thing is just knowing where your part is in the queue and like, you know, just knowing, like just having, just the, the machinist having the information that, okay, this is where my part is. It's two behind here. Do I need to go talk to Steve or Jason to get this part moved up because we really need it to run? Or, you know, just having that visual for everybody to see was huge. So I built, so we put a big 75-inch screen TV outside the quality department in the doors. I built this kiosk and everything. So you would put your part number and everything, and then it would just show it up on the board, like what was Knox being worked on. And then on the back end, I could go in and, you know, give priority to something if it wasn't just a normal priority or whatever, you know. So I built this whole thing. I really quite liked it. And then I was starting to work on 
I last thing I did was I brought in another shop floor Duramax to put on the back to where they could rapidly check parts on. Because another thing too is no one was there on second shift, so a part would just sit there. Um, oh geez yeah and it was climate control but there was parts that didn't need to go through those two big ass cmms like we could use a duramax and keep parts running you know out on the floor and so just going to more of that approach of putting quality closer to just shrinking the feedback loop of do i have a good part no and and then but working within the constructs of not trying to blow up because what i would do is i would start going into form function gauges and spending money there and getting things away from the CMM. And that was, and that's what my next step was. But the first step was just making the thing that they're used to more palatable and better just as an incremental step before you really move into what your big thing is. I've learned that I have often thrown out like, this is the big thing. Like, okay, we're going to do this massive thing. Kind of like what NG2 was like, we're going to buy all these machines at once and we're going to do all this mm-hmm. crap. And it's like, no, there's a phased approach. That's the right approach. And that's yeah. you know, how, how we're going to do this now. A foreshadowing for the future change yeah. management episode. I was just <laughs> thinking oh, really? that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Huge. Like that's a, that's a hard learned lesson. That you can't just be like, we're, no. we're doing it all right now. No. It's yeah. sca- it just scares people. It scares people so much. Well, it's a waste of money. Simple uh-huh. as that. It's a waste of money and resources. And and it just gives you stress that you don't, you just, you don't need it. Like it sucks walking into NG2 every day and seeing like eight new pieces of equipment and only one of them's running. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're just. Well, I mean, that's very often the thing is like you rarely have the manpower. Right to execute on a large scale plan all at once. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So, so I was at Paramount and then, um, Ernie got new patents and new technology and we went through and developed some of that stuff at Paramount. And, um, we were looking into, Ernie brought it to me. He's like, I think we got enough here to maybe start a new company. Um, if we can find an investor, you know, find a way to do this. And I'm like, and now I'm more involved. And, um, and, and, um, so I came up with like, okay, we're, we can maybe partner with Steve uh, joint venture deal to where we just, he'll give us a good price parts better than he would, you know, normal customers. I can help get those parts through with my expertise so I can help troubleshoot and whatever. And then, uh, what Steve would get is once we got these things going, he would get money based on the sales of those units of whatever widgets we made. Right. And so I liked that a lot because that means we are not footing the bill for, you know, building another shop or anything. I still have eyes on what we're doing. Cause I'm still a parent. I wasn't leaving Paramount. I was just gonna, we're just gonna bootstrap this thing and see how it goes. And then the money that we did bring in, all that money was just going to go to sales and marketing. Right. Ernie was going to hire sales and marketing guys, and we were just going to sell the stuff that Paramount and I were making, right? And uh, then COVID happened, <laughs> and COVID uh, really put me for a loop um, because of my wife and my my wife's immunocompromised, and my son is too, and COVID. I, I think rightly at the time, COVID scared the hell out of my family, um, me personally. And I just did not want to, I'm like, I can't be around other people or I, I just, you know, I, I, 
how how are we going to make this work and at the same time we did get a bunch of funding in for is now x2 dev group and ernie i i believe in what we were trying to do at that moment so i i jumped on board um this time i'm you know co-founder part equity owner you know i and very much is my baby too and so we decided to build another R&D manufacturing facility down in Utah where I can kind of just be alone uh, and Mm kind of work on this thing myself. And all the while, Steve has been being very good to me and saying, you know, let me work from home as best as you can. It's really hard to work from home when you're, you know, but I was doing a lot of programming and just having meetings with the quality people and just, and then meetings with potential customers. So it was fine, but it wasn't, I mean, it's not what Steve wanted for sure. He was definitely doing it as a favor to me, which I greatly appreciate. Like the guy is such a wonderful, wonderful boss. Um, And all the while I'm working, trying to work on this stuff too. And then it just came to a point where I'm like, I feel like I can't work for Steve anymore. I can't do this. I can't. um, So let me just dive into, and we had the money. So let's just dive into an X2 and let's get a, let's get some machines and just see how we can, and we get some investment money in there and see how it can work. So, um, we got a little place down, down in American Fork, Utah. I ended up buying the NTMX back from Steve. Well, an investor, <laughs> an investor paid for it. So we got the NTMX right. in and then Steve, uh, rented me some machines he was getting rid of. One was the machine that sucks the ass the mori 400 millimeter horizontal and then uh, yeah the nhx 4000 nhx 4000 piece of shit and Crack then the concrete <laughs> yeah and then two or that old ass vertical which was a wonderful machine an old ass vertical mill mv40e um, also MV, a mori yeah mori mv40e and then a mori nl 2500 or 1500y which was also a great machine yeah the thing with steve and his shop he is meticulous about how he takes care of his equipment and he's always putting in new equipment but even the old equipment it's like brand new like it's well taken care of equipment right like well and those are historic like mori machines not right. dmg mori machines exactly yeah. except for the nhx 4000 which sucked ass right. yeah that and and it but that one didn't come from steve that what? one came from the nhx well, no, 4000 came from steve because steve owned that company too yeah but it but he it, he had just oh, bought right that yeah company. that's a good point so steve did not maintenance that machine yeah <laughs> he kind of inherited so, that machine at the same time because he kind of bought out another company and he inherited that machine then and then i you know rented it from yeah him. Um, and it's the classic so. oh this machine was great before it only cut plastic yeah oh super dude. low hours it, it stunk like it remember when we first got it like yeah. crazy like something Ugh. was wrong even like the the mori guy the kid, I don't remember his name. He works, he works for Steve now. And yeah. He works for Steve now, yeah. Um, but we showed him, like, if you handle jogged, like, just move the X and, like, and like did this, it was like, boom, 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 boom. We had to go so slow. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's and he's like, oh, that's not right. And it's like, yeah. And it's like, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not, not at all. Yeah. And it legit, like, there was, shook so much, it cracked the concrete under the mm. foot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, it's like we it only had like four inch concrete there too, which is another yeah. issue. Like right. it wasn't the best facility, but we were going fast and had enough. Theoretically, it had well. No, it's, it didn't even have enough power. No, you know what? That no, I inherited that building. I didn't pick that building either because when yeah. NG two closed because of ATF regulations and so forth, like you got to manage don't get away with your FFL. Like you got to manage where your suppressors went and everything with the government. Right. And there were still some forms out there. So we needed to have an address to just manage the leftover blow up of NG two. And then Ernie also has his other company, which was a gunsmithing company that was tied in there called red Creek. And so he had an FFL there too. So they needed to have a facility for just managing those things and just have offices just for managing. When we got that building, like, we weren't going to manufacture there. So the building actually wasn't made for the manufacturing there either. Cause we actually ended up having to pay p- pull power from the neighbor. Classic. Yeah. Oh geez. Yeah. And, and then uh, the floor wasn't you, thick enough. Did you talk about, I don't think you talked about how somebody posted a picture when you were with NG2 doing the turnkey stuff still that somebody at methods posted pictures of oh, the parts yeah, in a Facebook group. Yeah. And then the ATF came, came to, in. came into NG2's facility and to methods. Yep. And that was also when it's like, Oh, NG2 didn't have its FFL yet to manufacture suppressors. It was still under the red Creek one. Oh my God. <laughs> it was bad. It was, it was bad. Yeah. I forgot all about yeah, that. They don't screw around that was, with that. Though. No, that we was do the, not screw around with it at all. Yeah. Well, that like, was we part, are so Cause that was part of where, was that part of the reason why the investors were like, no, I don't think so. I don't know. It was more just the market wasn't there and we weren't going as fast as they were promised or thought we should be going, I guess, you know, as far yeah. as sales and so forth. So is this, so we're talking 2020 now ish or 2021, you now have your own shop, you have your machines. Mm-hmm. Where did this all go? So then, yeah, then this is where Zap comes in. So Ernie, you know, we're, talking we have some money we're talking about the market's tanking again and no one's really buying accessories and then ernie has this idea for a a full-on ar-15 style rifle but with all the things all the technology that he wants to incorporate to make it the best version of an ar ever made right and he's pitching this to me and i mean really it's just on a freaking napkin uh, at this point, we have the Jackal charging handle. We have the VF-18 muzzle brake. We have our Orion suppressor, Artemis suppressor, all kind of done and, you know, out there. And we have manufacturing set up through mostly uh, Paramount at this point to do that. So Ernie came up. He's like, I think we should do this rifle. If we got them, we got some manufacturing time and you're going to be working here now full time and let's bring in some machines and do you think we should do this and i mean at that moment it was me scott the one investor ron um and ernie in the board meeting making these decisions and we all decided okay let's give that a go and what does that mean to make that thing go and how fast can you make that go so i'm going from nothing and we want to get to this design and that's going to cost this much money to do that so first thing was okay is someone into this that's going to fund this thing because we didn't we needed more money and we did find someone to start us on that path that wanted that saw the vision and wanted to see it you know wanted to see it through it was a bunch of rich oil guys from 
Texas. And um, that were very into guns. And Ernie would, I think, was the one guy's gunsmith, basically, you know, whatever. So we got more money from them funding it just to start this, you know, Blue Sky project, which was, you know, nice. But we had nothing. I mean, really, we needed to do everything. And in a short amount of time, because, um, you know, we needed to have prototypes to show to them so they would fund the next portion of it, right? So we had to get to a prototype stage and then, you know, they'll fund the next part, what have you. And um, and so I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this by myself, you know, all the parts and figure everything out. So that's when I reached out to Chris. I said, hey, what are you up to? You want to maybe come out here and consult for a while? And he wasn't wasn't liking his job at that moment. And he's like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll come out. <laughs> so yeah. He I, said, three months. I got you. Yeah, can you give months. me three months? Yeah, and I said, it's can like, you give me three months? That's what it was, yeah. Yep. Yep. I remember you telling me about this, I yep. think. Yeah, exactly. This is this is the, ins- like, this is the I had had. Yeah, I had had ZC for like a year basically, but I would did nothing. And then he hit me up and it was like, oh yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I'll do it. Um and then it ended up being about two years mm-hmm. that we worked together. Yeah. Um, like I was working for Jason in Idaho when we first on the first episode I was on. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So wait, when did the move to Idaho happen? Oh, that happened soon too. Um so um, we start working on the design of the ARX. Chris and I get working prototypes done in like three months. However, COVID started, I started realizing more about COVID and actually I think I got COVID and it wasn't a big deal and, you know, kind of, so I started and we kind of do this big project. So I ended up hiring a couple of machinists and, to work with Chris, uh, and help get all the things done that we needed to get done in such a short time. And Chris knocked out, I mean, we killed it. Like, I mean, we hired we have our one design engineer that Ernie and I work with works for us part-time named David. And David is very good at getting you an 80% design. And then I take the rest of it and make it, you know, work tolerance wise and everything. And then I'll make all the prints and figure all that out. So, um, so David did that. He made the functional version of what we want. Cause we have like patented lower control, ambi controls that no one else has. We have a, trunnion setup where the handguard meets into the upper that no one does um and then other things if you look at you know if you go to our website you'll see it on there it's very different looking thing um and so david made the functional 80 percent design right and we're going hard and fast here and too fast too well obviously too fast yeah in, in hindsight but i mean just you know this is it was fun so he, we hired a couple of design engineers or design students from BYU and to put lines to it. We wanted it to look very unique and like, a you know, we gave him like the line, like we wanted all the lines that seemed like purposeful and not just like you're slapping an upper and a lower together and it's all boxy. Like we wanted it to be very smooth and a way to protect the controls, but in a way that was very aesthetically pleasing. And, you know, and so they did that and then they gave us back to us and I liked it and I still love it. The thing is though, it's all surfacing yeah, on an upper and lower and billet. And so, you know, that takes time and, and the models time. and the models suck ass. Still crazy. Suck ass. Like, like, however, I've never seen 
how like the techniques that they used in SolidWorks are bananas. Like you can't modify anything without it just without completely it breaking, breaking. breaking everything. Like <laughs> Dude, they did a lot of like, mirroring from one side to another, but then they're like calling out features like 30 inches away and then like projecting on to it's, it's insane. It's bonkers. Yeah, and, and David doesn't do that. David is very good at SolidWorks, like very, yeah. very good. And that's why I like using him. He works well with us because he can understand he's, Ernie's, what Ernie's saying and, uh, too, and which he's is very important. Fast. Yeah, he's very fast. But they took that, his design, his, his, you know, functional design, and then did all this crazy stuff to it. So it became very hard for Chris and I to, when we came across things in the model that were wrong, that we needed to fix because of tolerance tax, or we needed to change something because we're like, we just can't even make that feature. It's freaking impossible. Um, and we would just things on the fly. That's a beautiful thing about making your own product and knowing mm-hmm. what I know or what Chris knows and knowing especially on the firearm side, like what's really important, what's not important. And just being able to just make those changes really quick and say, yeah, that doesn't matter. Like, I don't care if that's, you know, there or not there. And it's not going to, as long as it doesn't hinder the functions of the design or the functions of the gun or the overall aesthetic we're going through, you know, fuck it. We can change anything at any time as fast mm-hmm. as we possibly can. Just make and sure we, we document changed. it everything we changed everything it turns out there was so many things because again david's working off of and he works fast but he's working off of models maybe the bolt or the you know or or whatever that were found online and maybe weren't vetted the best they weren't you know from sources that were making these things and then so and i don't know at that point either like you know and we're just going hard and fast and making things and finding out that oh that doesn't work that's not right and then you know fix them as we go and but we had functional prototypes of that design working in three what, months, three, three or four months. Yeah. Cause I, I ran a little over. I started end of 21 or early 22 or uh, that's end of 2020. End of 2020. Oh, wow. yes. Okay. So, so, 20, so, beginning of 2021. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Cause I, my first day at X2, my first day full time was September 12th, eight yeah. days ago. So it was, um, yeah. Beginning of 2021. And before December, before the end of the year, we had a complete firearm that was functional. Mm-hmm. Um, still had a lot of work to do. That's not. There was a ton of work to do, but it was enough to show um, potential investors and get them hyped to get orders right. and potential buyers to get orders mm-hmm. that that kept the company going more or less for like another six months or so before the Nemo deal. Well, yeah, it kind of, so once we had the working prototypes, the, the first investor that we talked about that kind of got us going, they soured on us, um, because of how they were doing the, the deal part of it. They didn't like, um, so they just kind of backed out of it. Um, still fun of the beginning portion of it, but you know, whatever, they weren't going to f- do any more. Right. So, but we had functional prototypes that we can start showing around and, you know, um, Ernie, Someone started courting Ernie started. I mean, Ernie's very good at opening doors and he has a lot of connections in the industry. And, um, I don't know how the door got open, but there was this group, another startup, um, that wanted to be basically a dealer distributor for high end, unique, um, firearm stuff. They only wanted to sell like a, a few brands that were really something different and that they were this whiz bang group of people that could really sell, sell, sell. Right. And they had investor, a lot of investor money behind them. Um, and so 
we were working a deal with them and it was becoming to the point where like the deal was going to happen where they were going to pay us um, basically a royalty to the exclusive, well, not a royalty, the exclusivity of selling that rifle. So no one else could sell the rifle. They got the exclusivity of selling that rifle and our accessories of our entire product life into the future too. So like whenever we come out with new technology, cause we got plenty in the pipeline, they would be the first right of refusal to bring that to the market. And the benefit there, you know, to us was obviously we suck at sales and marketing so far. Like we might have the best stuff and we're really good at technology and manufacturing, but we cannot sell a damn thing or market anything. Right. And so it's like, Oh, match made in heaven. These guys are, and, and they had the money, like they had the money. And now it was though, we needed to land the deal. We needed to shore up how are you going to manufacture this in the quantities they needed? Um, Cause they wanted to get, to, I, I don't remember exactly, but I want, I think they, the initial thing was like, they wanted to get to basically 500 units a month in six months or something to that effect. I, you know, like ramping up oh, like wow. 103 months, you know, 200 and whatever it was. And there was this ramp that was in the deal that we needed to hit. And so at me uh, and Chris and started it, thinking about, okay, what machines do we need to buy? How are we, how am I going to, like, I either need to bring in a ton of funding now on capital equipment to build out a facility in a very rapid way to meet this distributor's demand on this potential deal we're going to get, which would set us up for a long time and be very good for us as long as they held up their end of the bargain. And as long as I held up my end of the bargain and didn't die, which is coming up. Um, I was going to say, man, you're burying the lead. Yeah, like, we're, we're, we're pretty close to modern day. And you're still not dead. Oh, okay. Cause it just it's, happened last year. So it's fine. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Um, so at the same time I was doing some consulting work on the side, just cause I didn't have enough to do in my life with oh. uh, Nemo arms up here in Idaho. And they were in position there. What, what they wanted to do as a company was transition away from solely just cause they make their own firearms they wanted to transition away from being a machine shop that just made their own stuff to making just being a general machine shop right and building that out and bringing in customers and that's obviously what i've been doing for a while now and i have a lot of good connections and in doing that consulting work with their group um and then talking to their owner about how i you know what we were doing on our side here and needed you know it became evident to both of us that maybe there's something we could do together here meaning that he had a ton of money to build a massive facility. So they built a big, they had a massive building. They it's up in Nampa right now and they were going to transition and, and buy m- millions of dollars with equipment to, you know, fill this place up and then go hog wild on bringing in, you know, manufacturing work or whatever. And they needed someone to um, make that happen, you know, to orchestrate that thing. And I have that ability and uh so i said okay well how about we do this again kind of like the paramount thing like on on the rx is like okay well if you can give me preferred pricing and ability to push everything through your shop you will pay for you know we're buying the parts from you so you're and you need to anyways you're paying for the machinist it's you know i'm just lending my expertise and running it basically i'm like i'm there's that was signed up as basically i was going to be the ceo of their shop and my shop but my shop was going to be in their shop i was going to move up the pieces of equipment that i was keeping in american fork move them into that facility there they were going to carve out a little space just for x2 so i can keep the ffl and you know do all that stuff but mainly 
I would be just, you know, Nemo mostly employee and, you know, making sure X2 is being taken care of on the operation side there. So basically wind down all of American Fork um, and then spin up everything. And then what I was being told, and I wish I would have done, and I learned this now, one of the lessons I learned here, and this is on me, learning that what actually is going to be available to you in the mm-hmm. timeframes that were promised to you. We didn't get it in writing, but I I was up there in the new facility. I, I picked all the machines, but I did not realize because of the poor management, I feel, at the, at the company, um, how hard it would be for me to implement my plan because of the egos of the people that were already there and the the inability of the leader to really set it up properly or maybe he just didn't believe in me or whatever i mean sure that's the story now you know whatever um really he dude he just couldn't get he just couldn't get out of the way that's the biggest problem is like uh, he brought you in he he did this with everybody which is he'd bring you in to do the job and then he just wouldn't let you do the job you know and and then i started learning like the people that were kind of like and i'm trying to be you're being very trying, diplomatic about this whole situation. No, no, but I'm also trying to be diplomatic in the, when I'm going through it too, because these employees that are a problem, like I can get them, like, I think I'm pretty good at, like, I'm pretty, I can get along with anybody. I can make this work. They have good attributes. Right. And I think I can maybe make this work, but I just wasn't ever given the power to make it work mm. and it was no. never going to get it. And then on top of it, the lead times on this freaking facility that I thought was going to be up in like two or three months. And so I, um, it just finished. It just finished. Just finished. (laughs) Yeah. So I, but a big part of signing that distributor deal, the exclusive distributor deal was signing the deal with Nemo. So I signed both deals at the same time. So Nemo agreed that deal and then boom, distributor agreed. Great. We got a bunch of money in. We're going to shut down operations we're going to perfect the arx we got, but now we got to start delivering and supposedly i'm going to have this great you know opportunity to do that up there and it became very quickly evident that that wasn't going to happen in a time frame that was going to be okay for my customer so i'm having weekly and, and then again chris has never left me now because now i'm like well now i got to do this so i need you chris to help me do this and that and chris was actually oh. in the joint venture deal as a third party that I said uh, yeah. that I would, my X2 is going to pay for consulting fees to get Nemo what it needs and what X2 needs, you know, through this whole process. Cause I know I can trust and Chris to do can the I, thing. Can yeah. I say real quick that, cause you wanted to talk about this, that the, the Akuma that I crashed was, was Nemo's Akuma and I did it. <laughs> and Jason was standing right next to me. When it happened, oh, no. I was, we, I was well, like, he was showing me something cool. I was like, this is a cool feature. And we j- both just watched the, the upper turret just slam into the, right. the, and Jason turned to me and he's like, you need to leave. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> so he, this but, is the one you crashed so hard. You ended up fixing a problem. Yeah. That's the problem. Like Chris and I were fighting a problem with the, the spindles lining up because it was moving off angle as you move so depending on where you swept it it would be different and we didn't really realize that now i know to check that way going forward i just assume like another assumption you just assume that this is right and it was never right Um, and we were fighting it and then again same deal like the guy that was in charge of the shop at that moment hated also dead he hated my guts and so this was was all chris's fault and then chris and i'm playing 
you know, I'm just, you know, speaking Chris's praises, knowing like Chris needs, like Chris is not the problem here, but I, you know, I'm trying to do that dance. Right. And, um, then that happened and I'm like, yeah, Chris, you got to go. Cause I'm like, this I one I banished, can't, you know, <laughs> banished to the shadow realm. That was American fork. Yeah. I'm like, go back down to Utah. Cause they stole the machines down there, obviously. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but that was, and I took that, that over. That, that did lead to like a really funny interaction later down the road when we were doing the Omen buffer tubes. Right. And, and fuck, what was that guy's name? Who hated me? I can't remember. He's uh, also dead now. Bill Shans. Bill Shans. He hated my guts, and he, like I remember. And I don't. And I, again, I don't want to speak ill because I deal with these. Yeah. These people well, still not Bill. So, um, yeah, well, but same yeah. with your mom. <laughs> yeah, oh, I don't. No, I don't do it. <laughs> I don't deal with her very much either. Um, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, you gotta. Uh, me and my sister are talking this. Cause like she called me crying this morning and she's like, mm-hmm. I just have so much anxiety. And by the end of it, we're just like, she was just like, God, I'm so over it. <laughs> LOL. Bye. <laughs> I'm literally dead, <laughs> literally dead right now. X is over the eyes. <laughs> and you're oh like, wait, what? <laughs> and then, but we mm. made the Omen buffer tubes on the NTMX, which is, which was a hilarious setup. Cause we put a 10 inch long drill on the lower turret by doing this like offset like an offset tool holder and like it worked like we got that thing dialed and i remember jason delivering him and then he told me that that both the bills were like wow these are good parts and jason was like who made these or like jason was like chris did that and bill's like demeanor (laughs) the guy who hated my guts was just like upset because <laughs> he just still hated your guts. <laughs> yeah, he still hated my guts, but he and like just said what I did was good. It's like, yeah. He's like, damn it. Yeah, fuck. It. Yeah, actually, these are trash, and he threw them away. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you've got both shops. The I'm shutting deals I, falling apart. Yeah, you're worried about making hitting the, the guns that you actually are contracted to make. Right. That so, we got prepayment on that. You know, we need to start delivering on because the way we're going to get make more money is by delivering guns now, right? And right. so like, this is it. Like we got to do this. And, um, and just, and just real quick, just real quick. How much did you weigh at this point? I was 365 pounds. I'll share some pictures, Dylan, if you want to, I mean, I'm fine. If you want to share pictures of before and after it's totally cool. Yeah. But uh, anyways, so, I yeah. died, but we haven't got there yet. Nope. Yeah. But I'm 365. I, I, here's the thing. Like I left Ohio. I'm always a big boy. I was like really into working out and stuff in Ohio. And I was like, when I was, in really good shape and could bench like 360 or whatever. I was like 240 and built. Um, and then the twins or well, my mom died and I got married and just kind of slowly. So when I left Ohio, I was like 270, 275. I was out of shape and I was like 270, 275. Right. By the time you said that eating was your coping mechanism yes, yeah, from all the way back then. It still is, unfortunately. Um, and so uh, I ballooned up to at this point, which is my max stress level. There's definitely a level of stress through the jobs and everything I did compared to um, how much I weigh. So I'm at peak stress here, right? 365 pounds is my max. And um, so dealing with, and then I was just diagnosed with diabetes. I had um, early onset heart disease. I was in very, very bad shape. And um, yeah, I was, I mean, just terrible shape. And in all the ways, remember, my wife finally got me because I was kind of ignoring it, obviously. 
don't have time for that. Got me into a doctor down to get my diabetes, like, like uh, probably got diabetes. I was, I got the blood glucose meter. You buy it, you know, Walgreens, or whatever, and checked the fridges. I'm like, oh crap. So go in, they do the blood work and like go in after that for a follow-up to go over what they found. And the, there's triglycerides in your bloodstream, which is basically fat cells floating around in your bloodstream. And the doctor, who's been a doctor for many, many years, says to me, this is the highest I've ever seen it ever. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And it was a ridiculous number. I don't even remember. It's like, I mean, if you cut me open and you suck some of my blood, I think it would taste like Mac sauce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, that's how bad I was was bad and 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 i for a while there i was tracking my choleric intake just to see like where what am i doing like how much do i really eat and i'm not even joking i was eating roughly 12 to fourteen thousand uh calories a day lunch like just lunch time was awesome though i'll tell you why (laughs) (laughs) um but it was very very you know obviously very bad but that's how i dealt with stress anyways so the writing's on the wall nemo but i still need to try to make Nemo work as best as I can. Like, even though, and so I'm having meetings with and every week, we're having weekly meetings with the distributor dealer group, you know, and I'm being very honest about like where we're at, we got to do, and they're getting very concerned because pushing back dates. I'm like, you know, but I, I'm telling you why, like I don't have a facility. And, but then again, going to, okay, how do I fix this? Right? Like, how can I fix this? And what do I need to do to fix this? And it's like, well, I can't be down in, Utah again because my wife was not happy about moving up to Idaho. So, so when I signed with Nemo, I needed to move up to Idaho, and that one was not one that Danielle wanted to do. And I convinced her to do it because it was the best thing for the company. And this was we were finally there. Like we had someone paying for our guns. We have you know the manufacturing worked out. I just got to do my job, and we'll be okay, right? So I move up in October of twenty one to Idaho. Um, very quick, find a house, pay too much for a rental and, and start doing the job at X2 and then trying to manage, um, cause I've still had them running parts. Cause I mean, at least I had some machines down there. So I had them still doing stuff down in Utah. And luckily I had a couple of employees still there and, you know, and I was going to move them up. Well, wasn't sure I was going to move them up to Idaho cause I was going to have a little facility up here just a administer all the ffl compliance crap and you know whatever um so I was, that's how it was kind of going then i realized like this isn't going to work like i need to bring the machines up here somehow and get and then i talked to talk to the owner of yeah the owner of nemo and said hey because they bought the machines and the machines were sitting in crates the building wasn't done. So they bought all these machines and they're just sitting there and they've been sitting there. Ton, a ton tons. of equipment. Like yeah, for, that I spec'd out. Four UMCs. Yeah, I spec'd it all out to do all these things and which was great. So I, you know, it was the things I wanted, but they're all sitting in crates. So I had the machines. I just didn't have a building or anything to put it in. Um, so I was talking to the, the, guy, the CEO of Nemo about, okay, what if I lease a space up here Find a space, lease a space up here. We drop those machines. My my floor, my little shop floor here. I'll bring up my machines from Utah, and let me just start going that way, you know, and um, you know, that way at least. And then as parts are coming off your machines, even though they're in my facility, 
we still pay you the same rate that, you know, we agreed upon, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, okay. So I found a facility, a place to lease off of the back of the anodizer building, a shit space that was just filled with garbage that didn't have the, you know, the proper power drops or anything, but I'm like, but there was nothing else available. Like Idaho's booming. There's just nothing like I, and I got to go now. So I took it. Um, I didn't even have a big enough doorway to get the NTMX through. So I needed to hire contractors to cut the, I mean, I had the landlord approve it, but then I hired contractors to cut the freaking wall out, put a bigger garage door in and then hire people up here to help me get these machines going. Right. I mean, I have Chris and at that point, Chris had, um, a couple employees who no, uh, this decision directly led to me hiring James, James. Right. And then James was on site hundred percent of the time or most of the time with me. And so was zap until, you know, things got going. So basically I had those two guys and then I had, um, I hired two people. Um, and so this is T minus two weeks until I croak. I have a building. It's all in my head. One of the things I, going to get to but one of the things is you know how i was saying like i feel like i can do anything i also feel like i should do everything so everything's Uh, in my head don't i fucking know it yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and uh so i'm doing you know i mean there's there's been days where i'm i mean still there are still days like this but during our sprint to getting that arx life fighter out i i mean seriously i was 22 22 hours of just working you know, whatever. And it's thing is like, I could have looking back on it, I could have gave some of that stuff to other people that like Chris, who I was paying to do stuff for, but I mean, Chris was buried too. And that's the thing, like just, it, it became a thing, but a lot of everything is in my head because I'm running the entire company. I'm, I mean, I'm paying all the bills. I'm doing everything except for, you know, compliance. I had a girl that was doing compliance, which was uh, a stressor, cause which sucked. was a stressor cause she was hard but she was anal and I liked that about compliance stuff. And mm-hmm. then I had a one, Oh, not good machinist, but he was a lovely guy and I, I quite like him and he was learning. Um, and Jeremy, uh, Jeremy, good old Jeremy. I still, he reaches out every once in a while. I got to actually call him. He's, he's a very nice guy and he's trying to learn. He's trying to be better. But so I had him down there, but he needed Chris or someone to be there to make sure he was making good parts. And so, yeah. and then I had Michael, who's my very, very good friend, especially through the last year or so, Michael Morton, um, hired him as like a sales marketing guy just to prior to bringing the distributor on. So then when we brought the distributor on, he kind of was managing that deal, but it wasn't really like he needed to go out and find new stuff, you know, cause we kind of had that lockdown, but he needed to manage that. And then he was just helping me oversee things down there. Cause he lived down in Utah. And then I had Chris up here, but I needed to hire good machinist up here i knew quickly to help me you know get this going so i threw out an ad and t minus yeah t t minus two or three weeks before me dying i got this building i'm hiring an electrician to drop power got riggers coming in with the four umc 500s i got chris programming two. or just two yeah, that's right i got chris um i got the robo drill coming in too i think at that moment and then i got chris coming in the program he's got his guy coming in but you know i gotta drop air conditioning into the building so i'm figuring that out i gotta put a wall up 
um, between us and anodizers and just all the things, right? And then transferring the, you know, getting an FFL there because you can't make a license lower there without, you know, having the FFL. So, you know, doing all, I'm doing all these things right then hiring these two guys. I hired Chuck Arndt as my shop manager. He's still my shop manager today. Who's fucking awesome. Yes. And killer. Yep. And then Justin Hoffman, who is wonderful Swiss machines. Mm-hmm. Cause I, um, um, needed a guy cause I was buying a Swiss and I needed a guy to run a Swiss and I not great on Swisses. So I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll kind of placate my, and I started hiring on things that I couldn't necessarily do i think at that point and he just seemed like a good around all around good guy and he is he's a freaking phenomenal guy so i hired those two guys i'm getting anxious just hearing about this so i can only imagine (laughs) the level that you're at at this point yeah so i got the stress of i might lose at that point before i die i'm like at the stress of the dealer distributor is getting antsy and might back out of the deal managing that as best as i can but there's only so much you can do there I am trying to build a shop up here, bring in machines from all over, shut down, you know, government, you know, controlled stuff there, trying to move it up here and just trying to get everything back under my control um, and then delegate out hopefully to, you know, Chuck and, 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 and Zap and his team and just go and we're going to make these things and we're going to, you know, have a new timeline for you for whatever. So. I'm at Nemo on April 21st of 2022 and um, I'm not feeling good. Um, and a little, little more backstory. I don't know if anybody, if you know, or anybody knows, but I have, a, I always had a hiatal hernia. What a hiatal hernia is, is basically you got this muscle that inflates your lungs that goes around your esophagus at the base of your stomach. So between your stomach and your lungs and there's a hole in there and it, your esophagus goes, your esophagus goes through there. And whenever you're not eating, it clamps up and shuts off your stomach from your throat. Um, my, and lots of people have a lot of people don't even know they have it, but a little bit of my stomach was pulled up through that muscle area. So it never really got to shut off all the way. So I'd have really bad acid reflux growing up and, you know, stuff like that, especially as I got heavier, I had a hard time like laying down flat after I ate because of the food would just flow to my throat. I had some ulcers in my throat and whatever. So you basically take Nexium or something and go on your merry way. Um, that's a precursor. So that day I'm not feeling, not feeling hot. Um, and <laughs> I end up using the bathroom and it was the most God awful thing that have, has ever came out of my ass. <laughs> stunk so bad and, it, and then i'm just like oh man i really don't feel good i'm like i think i'm gonna go home and it was like already three or something i'm like eh, i need to go home i don't feel so hot um i get i'm walking out and i just happen to be walking out with one of the guys that worked there and he's like you okay you don't look good i'm like yeah i don't feel good but i'm going home i get home and as i get out of the car the urge to you know have diarrhea was incredibly powerful so i run in the house and in the foyer of my house, I have a little, you know, by the front door there, I came through the garage and the front door there, there's a little bathroom, you know, off to the side there just has a toilet in there and a sink. It's very small. Um, I run in there, I, you know, get on the toilet and the way, and I'm a big boy, I'm six nice. foot, 365 pounds. And the way this bathroom works is the door opens up inside and it's swift. And when you swing the door, it just barely clears the toilet. Right? So if you're sitting on the toilet with the door closed, 
you're blocking the door from opening, which is important here. I started feeling really bad, like something was way, way off. So I, uh, and I just ran in. I didn't talk to anybody. My family's out in the living room right next to me. And at the time, I thank God. At the time, my mother-in-law and father-in-law were living with us too. So they were there too. I opened the door up, crack it. And I'm like, Danielle, come here. Something's wrong. And uh, I remember uh, the day before we got in a big fight and we never really resolved it before bedtime kind of deal. So she was pissed at me, you know, low key pissed at me. And, you know, but I'm like, I need you to come here. And so she came over. She's like, and then, you know, obviously the look on her face. She's like, what is going on? And then I just started passing out. My head fell back. And a lot of this now is what I'm going to be telling you is I'll let you know when I come through and when I don't come through, a lot of it is just what Danielle had to experience. So um, she, the last thing I remember there is she reached her hand through to hold my hand. And then I'm like, something's wrong. And then I started passing out and what she couldn't get in the bathroom because I'm blocking the door. I'm 365 pounds of dead weight. Um, I'm totally unconscious and my head is trying to slam into the side of the sink. So she's just trying to hold my head up through the door crack just so I don't, you know, bust my head open. The last thing I remember hearing is her yelling, call 911, you know. Um, and next thing I know, I came up, came through. I don't know what happened. So I'm out now. But what Danielle has told me is she finally pushed her way through. She's sitting on the sink, just holding me, holding my head until the, sorry, until the uh, ambulance people, the fire department showed up first, I guess they come in and they're, you know, trying to assess the situation. And so, um, they eventually get me out onto the foyer, you know, outside of the bathroom, just on the floor. Right. And I remember coming through, um, for, for a little bit there. And I remember trying to make a joke because that's, kind of my, my thing because um, I, I you know i got that ohio thing i mean when i'm telling about like i always feel guilty for everything and i'm like oh man i made these firefighters freaking carry me out and my poor wife oh my you know, God. i'm always guilty i always feel so guilty so i'm like oh, i'll make a joke that's how you know i dealt with deal with things and i'm like you know i'm like is this really happening and danielle's crying you know and, and i look up in the boy and unfortunately i remember seeing my kids on the stairway because the stairway's right there and i'm like oh you know and I'm, you know, I think I'm half naked at this point because, you know, of yeah. whatever. And so they're like, all right, we're going to, we need to bring it to the emergency room, obviously. So I'm awake a little bit. And so I'm in the ambulance going, no, I passed out again or something, but they get me in the ambulance. I get to the emergency room around the corner. They get me in a room. I'm still out. They did a CAT scan. I don't remember that, but I remember coming back from the CAT scan and being awake and being all. What, perfectly normal. Like I was talking to Danielle, we were talking about like, yeah, I'll probably get, it was probably, you know, cause I had, I was sick for like two weeks prior to this, like really bad cough. And I'm like, yeah, I probably got pneumonia or something and, you know, just loss of oxygen and passed out or whatever, just cause I felt fine. Like I really felt like I was just going to go home. I was texting Michael about work stuff, making jokes with the own of the CEO of Nemo because I blew up the bathroom there and just left immediately and he had to clean it up and, <laughs> you know, and I was apologizing because I heard him say something as I was walking out the door. So I was positively, like, Hey dude, sorry, that was me. I'm actually in the hospital now, but I think I'm going home soon. Uh, and then the doctor came in <clears throat> and I remember this perfectly. 
He said, uh, you're dying. And the only people that can save your life are in University of Utah. Um, and we got to go now. And the crazy thing here, Dylan, is my wife filmed it on her phone. So my wife couldn't believe what she was hearing. So she just hit play or record just so she can hear. Cause she wasn't processing, I guess. So she was just, so you don't really see me. Like, it's not like she's holding it in my face. Like, yeah, get his reaction, <laughs> make him cry. Put it um, on YouTube. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it, you know, but so I, yeah, she still has, I mean, we still have it. It's, I think Chris, yeah. you, you've heard it. I actually, I, I haven't know. heard it. Oh, the really? Noob, well, next- <laughs> noob gets owned by sepsis. Yeah. Video. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm asking like, what are, or Danielle's asking, I'm asking like, what are, what are you saying? Like, he's like, I can't give you, um, it, you know, statistics don't matter at this point. I'm like, do I have a 5% or like, he's like, it does not matter. Only thing we can do is try. And the only people that can do this are in university of Utah. We have a plane standing by in Boise because I was in Meridian at the point. And like, so we, we got the life flight ready. We need to go now. What had happened was my whole stomach got pulled up through my diaphragm. Don't know when it happened. I don't know how long it was there or whatever, but my entire stomach got pulled up through on your stomach. The blood flow for your stomach is supplied from the lower region. So that was cut off at some point from being pulled up through. And so my stomach died. And it was a septic time bomb sitting next to my heart and my lung, just waiting to blow, basically. And um, so and it was starting to leak out already. So that's where I was like passing out. And I was becoming infected by this thing, you know. And uh, so need to go now. And the only people that can maybe save you are these people. And obviously, again, like I said, I'm in very bad shape at this point. So like that doesn't help to be freaking 365 pounds, diabetic, you know, on, on, you know, just in bad shape as it is going into a situation where you're now, you got to, you know, all this crap happening on inside your body. That's very, very bad. So anyways, they get me, I have to, I had to say the goodbyes to my wife that, you know, that, you know, take care of the, and I didn't get to see my kids or talk to them, you know, cause they weren't there obviously. And, and very, like very quick, like, and I didn't know what to say. I just, you know, and I remember Danielle said, you wake the fuck up. Like she said, go to sleep, you wake the fuck up. And she kept on saying, wake the fuck up. And I said, yeah, I will, you know, and I love you and, you know, take care of the kids as best as you can. And then, um, she needed to go home. It was at nighttime kind of. So like, there was no point of her driving down to Utah at that point. She was a wreck that, you know, and just, and they didn't know if I was going to make it obviously to Utah. So like, there's no point of you you know, in the state you are in drive down there. So they told her to go home. They would keep her updated in, uh, and in the morning she could head out, you know, if, if I made it or, or what have you. So I'm in the ambulance transitioning and I'm awake and, and aware at this point, I just said, buys my wife, put me in an ambulance and they're transferring, transferring me to Boise. So they can get me in the life flight helicopter to fly me over to Utah. Um, so I'm in the ambulance and I'm like, all right, the things I'm worrying about, um, I, I needed to call my business partners and make sure financially that my family is going to be taken care of. But, you know, so I call Ernie and I call Scott, um, and you know, told them what was happening, which was insane. I'm sure to hear as I'm in an ambulance and 
and I, you know, made them promise that they would take care of my family and they said they would. And then told them I loved them. And then I called, I think I called you next app, but you didn't answer. Yeah. And then I called Michael Morton to let him know what was going on. And, uh, to, to, and I wanted him to, you know, and I asked him to help take care of my kids, like kind of in a fatherly way, because he's, he's a great father. And so, you know, and then I started calling my dad, um, to let him know, you know, my mom's dead. I want to let my dad know. And, um, I don't remember talking to him. The next thing I remember is me kind of passing out again and the EMT or whatever in the ambulance, taking his finger and pushing it into my chest so freaking hard. To, and he kept on saying, just stay with me, stay with me. Don't, don't fall asleep. Stay with me. And I remember in my head, the last thing I remember saying is, yeah, I'm not doing that. And I was out. <laughs> and, by, oh and by out, you mean you died. Uh, meaning, yeah, I died. Um, so. Holy shit. What I was now. Uh, so uh, the next 40, was it 37 days or 34 days? I'm in ICU. I think it's 37. 37 days in, or something like that. Anyways. In two different ICUs. Well, yeah. So obviously I wasn't going to make it to Utah. So they had to do an emergency surgery in Boise where they cut me open from my chest bone all the way down to my little pee pee guy and ripped me open and tried to remove as much as they could to just stabilize me enough to get me to the team that actually could do the work or that could potentially do the work, you know, or whatever. So to try to save as much as my esophagus or whatever, or I don't know, save me or I don't know what the, I don't know what was entailed in the half surgery to get me enough to get over there, but they left me wide open, cut out whatever and had me on. And that's when I, uh, they sucked out a bunch of the infection. Yeah. And that's, that's when I, that, that was the big thing. Cause it was in your, it was getting into your blood. Oh, okay. Um, and that's what was going to continue to kill you. So they uh, cut you open, cut cut as much of your stomach out as they could get to, much. and then and then cleaned up, cleaned everything as much as they could, as quickly as uh, they could inside, okay. to keep you alive enough to get you to mm-hmm. the gastrointestinal mm-hmm. place at University of Utah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So there's that. So then I, as I understand it, I what they call coded. I flatlined the first time in the helicopter and they had to bring me back to life. Um, and then I got to Utah. They had to do another emergency surgery or whatever. I died again there. I think, I don't know. This is where I'm out. So I'm just, Chris is there. And here's a nice, I mean, here's the lovely thing. This is why I love Chris. And this is why I love Michael Morton. They're with my wife this entire time. So Danielle's down there. Zap's down there. Michael lives down there and they're and because of the dynamic, you know, just, it was, it was wonderful. Um, so Chris was there and seeing some stuff or maybe, I mean, or me, whatever, maybe I was in, I was in Utah mm-hmm. when this took place. Cause like when you called me, I was in Gunnison mm. in a trailer, my right. customer's trailer or whatever. Right, right. And so when it happened and I heard from Michael Morin, just kind of same thing that happened with, uh, like my mom just recently, I went into work and I was like, I'm leaving. And I went and I drove up to Utah mm. or I drove up to Salt Lake to the university. So over that, so Danielle got down there. I was still alive, barely. 
they had me on you know life support and all that good stuff and then um she was being told like every day they were doing some other surgery or something or i was getting a new infection developed pneumonia you know or then they they were trying to i think trying to decide like what's the best way to fix my insides you know and with save my life but then not remove as much as you know they would they, need to to you know so i could live maybe a life or whatever they were doing surgery so much he was open the whole time yeah like like for for like 20 some days like they they just, just put like it. a patch yeah. over the top and and twice he sneezed and his guts came out of his no, body. No, dude, no, yeah. stop. Yeah. One time. <laughs> I all right, well. I didn't see that. Um, Danielle. But Danielle did. Yeah. Oh, but like, like seeing. Yeah. She when like, you said trigger warning, like I should be like, oh, yeah, there's a trigger warning for this this episode. I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah, dude, but it was, I think I'm starting to understand what you were talking about now. It was fucking intense. And then, um, so... That whole thing was happening. And then he kind of stabilized. Like there was a tube that was permanently inside of him or that was like, there was many tubes permanently. Yeah, inside there was, <laughs> but there was one that was just, that was just for fe- infection drain, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just flowing out of him. It was crazy. And they kept go like going in, cutting more out, cleaning him over and over and over again. And then he died again. This like, and that's when they moved. Like he got moved from the the gastrointestinal ICU to the cardiovascular ICU, um, because now his heart was fucked up, um, because of the infection and stuff. And I've never seen like his heart rate was. He was just it was crazy to see somebody like laying there, and his heart rate was like through the roof. Like just, just like, like one thirty, one forty, something. Just, just out, and it's like, oh my god, mm. this is insane. <laughs> it yeah. was fucking insane. Yeah. So you know, Danielle's being told every day when they're doing a surgery that you know this is the one this that's could be make, it. This could be <laughs> yeah. it. You know, so she's getting that roller coaster every day, and you know, even and then they're thinking at one point that I was brain dead. Um, that I turns out which we still need to follow up on. I, I mean, I'm in way, I mean, I'm in excellent health now, but um, I had mini strokes. I guess they show up as like little black spots or something on your brain scans or whatever. So when they were scanning for braining activity, they saw like, Hey, he's had strokes. And I don't know, you know, we haven't, <laughs> we had other pressing issues at the moment. So yeah. they were afraid that, I, you know, I lost cognitive ability and, you know, and just, it was just bad, bad, bad. And Danielle was constantly, having to make decisions or or hear terrible things for those days but all in all i i yeah i flatlined three times altogether Um, i mean it made it back every time um and then uh i woke up and it was the weirdest thing so this is yeah i uh yeah so i um they tricked you yeah they tricked me because they, they couldn't breathe or whatever so that i was traked so i couldn't speak couldn't speak when i woke up if you're traked you can't speak you don't have a voice um and then i was laying in bed for 37 days or whatever i had atrophy i couldn't use my fingers or anything <laughs> like and mm-hmm. then i'm still and then i'm just coming out of being incredibly doped up for 37 days on drugs that you know were keeping me keeping me in some lucid state so i wasn't going to feel all the pain that i was going through 
And so it was just, I, I, it was just so, so weird. And then, um, I, the first thing I remember, and maybe I was coming in and out before, but the thing that I remember, the first thing I remember is, uh, cause everybody's wearing masks obviously and everything. And, uh, I remember Danielle came in and I'm like, I think that's my wife. I'm like, but I'm not sure. <laughs> cause I only could like see her eyes, you know? <laughs> and sure enough, it was my wife, which was great. And, um, and then from there, I started realizing the plight of my situation and um, what that was, was I still had some infection. I think I had a little bit of pneumonia still and my one lung was filling up. So they, um, you know, I was just, but I'm now I'm awake and I'm coherent and which is all good. But now I'm learning that I no longer have a stomach or part of an esophagus. And what does that mean? You know, and I got this tubes coming out of my side. I got a catheter still. I can't control my bowels i can't move my leg like nothing's working i can't talk and then luckily fairly quickly and i really pushed really hard on this probably too hard i started just working on all those things and i was showing really good improvement on like breathing and whatever so they they were expecting me to go like palatable care for a while which is like hospice and learn like i wasn't going to get untraked there i wasn't going to go home like i was going to have to go there for months and learn how to walk again and um from waking up in whatever it was may i left there june 6th and just went home i convinced them enough and i lied a little because i didn't want to go anywhere else but home um about and so I, as long as I can walk to the bathroom and do, you know, some stuff like I went through and just did it all there and then got good enough with breathing where they took the trach out and in the hospital and I could start talking again. And my brain was there and I was actually uh, much to my wife's chagrin <laughs> having meetings and learning oh my God. <laughs> and learning like <laughs> what happened, like what happened in the 37 right. days? Like, do I? My company folded is like, what is well, going on, right? Michael Morton and I took over mm -hmm. and started doing the QTR stuff, which like, as soon as Jason died, immediately went sideways, like so sideways. Um, it was bonkers. There was yeah. also like a lot of things, like the whole cognitive thing. There was things that like, that were in Jason's head and on paper that it was like some of the math that Jason was mathing prior to being sick was like impossibilities, like straight up impossible. And it's like, you realize like how affected he was or like Michael Morton and I were like, holy shit, he's been sick for a while. Cause you thought like in your mind, this was all possible, but it was not even close. Yeah. I did realize that now that I'm healthy, how yeah, I was in such bad shape, how foggy, my brain was, yeah. I am so much more alert now than I've ever been that I can remember. Like that's how, mm -hmm. and I'm not even saying it was from the sickness. I'm saying like, just from being so bad to myself mm -hmm. and just not taking care of myself. Like, like there was a fog about my, I wasn't as good. Loose. Yeah. You know, yeah, as I should have sure. been, I guess. And I, and I also think it ramped up really quick at the end there. Cause obviously I was just dying, but, um, yeah. So I, yeah, I just started having meetings and just figuring out things and, and Michael and Chris and Chuck and Justin, they all stepped up and kept it alive enough. And then I jumped yeah. in, um, as fast as I could. I mean, I remember I got out and then I had Danielle take me to the shop 
because Justin was having a problem on the NTMX. And so I had him <laughs> had them wheel me in because I couldn't really walk too well and I'd get a chair in front of the NTMX. And I just pointed and told him how to do every, you know, do the thing that we needed to do. Um, and uh, so when you left, how much weight had you lost just from sitting there for a month? Uh, I was down. That must have been just a giant shock to your body. Yeah. So too. I was already down to like 280 from just that. So 365 yeah. to like 280. Like, hey. And how much do you weigh now? I'm at 175. Holy yeah. Shit. So, um, and you gained weight recently. Yeah. I was actually down to like 165 when I had my last issue in June. So, yeah, the way I live now, I don't have a stomach. And so the way I live now, just to get on, off of that really quick, is I don't have a stomach. My esophagus um, was totally yanked out of me. And so, and he can't go back through because there's too much scar tissue there now. So they actually have to reroute it. It goes above my collarbone. And then I have like a little, no nice way to say it. I have a butthole, which is the end of my esophagus sticking out of my chest right below my collarbone. So because there's nowhere for saliva or anything to go and saliva can't just drop into your cavity. It'll cause an infection. So I can theoretically and i do and we can talk more about this even though we're going way long and i'm sorry but um, keep it going baby before we we'll hit four hours (laughs) oh my god so um i can drink and i need to drink um because my mouth gets so dry whatever i put in my mouth it is instantly in that bag instantly because it just goes through six inches of esophagus and it drops out into the bag that's an ostomy bag that people usually have for like if colonoscopy that's just up here on my chest so whatever I drink or whatever just goes into that bag. It is fucking wild. Yeah. I've had dinner with this guy so many times. He just has like a jug that's that's on his lap. Yeah. And I do like, like to eat still, which is a problem. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Yeah, that that house has zero leftovers. I made I made I biscuits and gravy, pancakes. I was like I was cooking when I was there and yeah, there was, was nothing left ever. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I just <laughs> So here's the thing, your stomach, you have the hormone in your stomach or whatever that tells you when you're hungry or when you're satisfied. I have nothing now. So I don't know. I'm never satisfied and I'm never hungry. There's just nothing. It's like trying to, I think a blind person trying to explain like what they see when they're blind. They're like, there's just nothing. It's not a color. It's just nothing. And so I don't have nothing there, which is a problem. How do you get nutrition? So because clearly you don't, I have a mm -hmm. eat for that. Right. Exactly. So I have a J tube. So a J tube is a tube that sticks out of my stomach and that goes directly into my small intestine. Um, and I hook that up to a machine, um, a pump, a parasitic pump basically. And that pumps in all the water and all the nutrients and basically like a milk, the protein shake, but you know, medical grade. And as I sleep, that pumps into me over like 12 hours and it switches between the water and that. And that's how I get my nutrition. And that's also how I get all my medicines and so forth. Or when I need to bolt, it's called bolster. Like if I do something that's a little strenuous or I'm about to do something strenuous, that's going to expel, like can't recover like a normal human anymore as far as sweat goes. So instead of you like drinking a glass of water or a Gatorade after you work out, I have to take these big 60 milliliter syringes and just shoot water in me basically to kind of keep it going. And I got to be cognizant of you only can go so fast doing that and just you know, so it's just a thing that I'm not used to uh, 
or I'm used to it now, but it's something that's a little weird, but that's basically I eat at night when I'm sleeping is I, you know, have the machines hooked up and do that. And then I go about my day. Um, You had a complication kind of recently. Yeah. June. I took you, I took you to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So in June, so obviously through all the crap I went through there, it hasn't never bore its head the first year. So, you know, it's been over a year at this point of me being uh, out of the hospital and, and living a life and, and all that. And I had another, I had a issue. I was actually in freaking vacation in San Diego and the machine stopped pumping. Like it was given an error or something. I'm like, that's weird. And then I noticed like I was in a lot of pain and what had happened was I got a bowel obstruction, which I guess is very common for people like me now because they did all that trauma in there and you just develop scar tissue. And so your intestines, or if you're moving around your intestines and I don't have a stomach in there, so your intestines could flop around and they might get kinked and then I can't eat or drink because I can't get the nutrition <laughs> into me, you know, and it never happened to me before. And they didn't tell me that going out that you are prone to this now. This is just a way of life. And so I didn't know what to do. So I was trying to push it in harder thinking, yeah, I'll just push it through, oh, no. making it worse and worse. So anyways, I ended oh. up in the emergency room there and they found out I had a bowel obstruction and then um, got home and. And I wasn't going to get the surgery in San Diego. I'm like, no, I'll just get, just get me to Boise because I'm there with my family and everything. Like, that's not the, that's not, that's not what we want to do here, even though it's very painful and bad for me. So for a whole week, I didn't eat anything or get any nutrition in me. So I dropped a lot of weight that week and finally got home. Um, I mean, they had me on IV in there just to keep my, through the blood, just to keep me hydrated. But as far as food and stuff, I didn't have any food. Get home. Yeah, I get to the hospital here. They admit me, obviously, and then they do the surgery where they went in. Uh, luck- luckily, it was just laparoscopic. They went in there and had a whole, I have a ton of scar tissue, the guy said, all through my intestines from, you know, the surgeries and stuff. And unfortunately, he'll, he can clear all that out, which is good. And there was no big kink because I guess sometimes what happens if there's a big kink, part of your intestines dies and then they got to cut that out and sew you back together. And that's probably in my future at some point. Like it'll, it'll happen. But, the ongoing is every time they do any kind of surgery in there, laparoscopic or otherwise, they're inducing now new holes for new scar tissue. So it's just kind of like an endless cycle. So I just got to be, a, now I know what to do next time. You know, don't pump things through. What you're supposed to do is don't do anything for two days. And sometimes things will just relax and open back up. Um, and no so, more belly flops. Yeah. Yeah. I did a belly <laughs> flop, which is probably stupid. My kids, we had a pool at the rental and my kids, uh, you know, egged me on to do a belly flop and i'm like all right i'll do it and that it it hurt (laughs) so so i don't know i don't know if it was related but yeah yeah it's correlation or causation yeah not not sure when you can be like you guys did this to me that that's always good so to, to round out the machining side of it though yeah you guys are making rifles now in our facility there yeah we made a whole bunch of rifles we lost the dealer deal with qtr so the big thing to do then was, okay, well, we have weapons. We need, now I need to build a marketing and, and what I said I suck at and start building that out and try to sell these things. Right. So, and then Michael, you know, had to, we, we hired another salesperson, hired another couple people and just try to sell our weapon, you know, and we were trying, we were trying to do that. And it's, it's hard when you don't have money uh, for a marketing and plan and even though you have the best thing like how do you how do you get the, the 
how do you how do you get it to catch fire and then the market started dying down a little bit now on firearms again this past year so it's like we're in a rock and a hard spot so a couple months ago i you know thinking about this company and thinking about okay where's our value and you know really come up with a strategy because we've been you know just trying throwing things against the wall and trying to make things stick over the last since i woke up kind of deal over the last you know 10 months and trying to make sales you know in in a more traditional sense and not having the expertise or the ability to do so learned a lot i mean you know and it was all good stuff but um what we've come to now as as a group and what our business is now we have a very good i think and very um laser focused business model now and what that business model is is like i said ernie comes up with these great ideas he's very good at patenting that technology we want, and what I'm good at is turning that into a viable R and D. You know, getting it into metal, figuring out all the kinks or whatever. And then I've been getting very good at selling the company, what we can do, and and making good contacts in in the industry and so forth. So, our business model is we're a research and development company. We make tech. Um, right now, it's mostly based on firearms stuff. It doesn't mean we can't. I mean, we can put our minds on anything and make whatever. And we have a very good process of, you know, defending and getting patents and, you know, all that good stuff. And then we take that technology and we shop it to, as we, I build the prototypes, figure out the manufacturing, figure out, and then we do it the extra step, which not a lot of people do is I can go in and say, okay, these are the machines you need to buy. If you don't have manufacturing, this is how you can go about it. I think this is what the cost could be if you follow this plan. And if you want, we can do that plan for you with my engineering group here. Or you can just buy the technology or, you know, license the technology or, you know, whatever you want to do. So that has been our new aim. And it's been, actually, we only been doing it for two months and um, I'm sitting on two agreements that are about, like, I just needed the lawyer to change like a couple more words. I'm waiting to come back and we'll sign it a two- $2 million deal over five years and another deal. And we don't do a damn thing except for what we're good at. We licensed our IP that we worked on and I gave them the blueprints and the ongoing support of, of vetting who manufacturing them for them. So they're outsourcing them or whatever to whoever, but in there because it, they wanted to carry our name on there, our, our brand name on there as a little niche, which is fine, but we needed to, you know, I needed to build in things in the deal of, you know, we got to verify the quality and you can't switch vendors or suppliers um, without us approving it first. Cause I need to, if it has our name on it, we need to control it. The, and the, and what's totally out marketing there, so. material and stuff. Yeah, like exactly. That. Right. Can, so, so that's kind of our business model now. And I, I think the team that I got that stayed with me through all this crap is very good R and D team. Um, and with my expertise and and again another thing i learned um learned a lot from dying is i can't have it all in my head i can't do everything um and i've been fighting myself and delegating a hell of a lot more and just letting people figure it out like when i hire people i don't give them tell them necessarily what to do i in general tell them i need you to handle this thing and figure it out and i'm what i'm looking for Sometimes it takes a little coaxing because not everybody came from a another shop that would let them make decisions or they thought they were going to get yelled at if they made the wrong decision. So I'm trying to build the culture around like, I'm don't 
like, if you make a mistake, I'll correct you. I'm going to do it in a nice way, but I want you to make more mistakes. I need more mistakes. I don't need you to be safe. Like, that's not what's going to make us, I don't think that's what makes us good or what's going to make us good. And that's not the environment I want to have. So that's kind of what I've been uh, trying to focus on. But then going a little bit too much, I think, lately, like where I've been letting people do a little too much, maybe I need to maybe get a little tighter a, on that so I, it's a balance it's a balance, it's a balance yeah right? i'm just trying to figure yeah, out you just said you got to make mistakes figure it out yeah, sure. you. can you could you the one thing uh that i one of the concepts you came up with with the light fighter that i think is really good um that you haven't really touched on is your future proof concept oh yeah well thanks i mean it's so Looking for, again, just trying to think of a way to market our, our, our weapon in a way that is, doesn't cost me anything <clears throat> except for maybe, you know, future, uh, operational costs, or whatever that I, that I think I'm good at controlling. Um, and we know the design, you know, is good and, and so forth. And then all the, and then also, you know, cause we are the way we are, we're going to make improvements. Like there's triggers we need, we want to make, there's different gas systems we want to make. I and thinking about that platform and, um, we're doing here, I came up with this idea of like, okay, maybe future proof is something. And I came, it came from like Koenigsegg. I think they do it. The real, real high end automaker where if you buy one and they, let's say in a year, come on with a new engine they put the new engine and if you request it and pay whatever, like way less, they put that new engine in your car. You get that new thing, whatever it is. And applying that to the ARX Life Fighter, which is our first future-proof weapon. So um, what that means is basically any upgrades we make to that rifle that we sell with that rifle from here until we stop selling that rifle, you can get if you request it. So we have it set up through the website or whatever. So, I mean, we already made adjustments like the safety selectors were dog shit when we shipped that thing. A lot of people, yeah. we got a lot of feedback. People didn't like them. So my fingy. Yeah. So we changed the design <laughs> of that and it's on there. Like, so if you want an Eric's life fire and you don't have the new safety selectors, just request it. We send you a video and the parts and show you how to do it yourself. Or you can even at this point, you know, send it in and we'll switch it out for you. Um, and same thing with, we changed out the nothing big, but like we changed the design of the pivot and takedown pins. So if you want the newer looking pivot takedown pins, request them, we'll send them to you. That's super cool. Yeah. So I, I love that kind of forward thinking. I, yeah. And, and again, it's low cost. I mean, we still got to get it out there and, and market it. And, and, but it has been when dealers explain it to their customers, they, they have at least the, you know, the amount of information I got back so far is like, now oh, that's a pretty cool freaking thing. So we just need, we, you know, we need to lay into it a little bit more. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know we got some ideas on the marketing and sales thing and, you know, hopefully it, uh, you know, it pans out. But I mean, really our, our end goal is, you know, we got these, we show that we got these viable products out in the market and they're, they're people that get them, love them. Really, we want to partner with somebody else to take this over or, you know, to really run with it in a big way. Like, you know, if it be SIG or, you know, Palmettos, you know, whatever makes sense where our gun would make sense into their lineup of what they're offering. That's what the dream would be. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. That's very along the lines of like the pumpkin plan that Chris and I read together of, you know, finding what you do well, that puts you in your own category Mm -hmm. and not trying to compete with everybody else, especially, you know, in a downturn. Mm -hmm. Um, So we got some questions from listeners. Yeah. One of them, speaking of the downturn, 
Lights Out Manufacturing asked, how do gun manufacturers plan according to the wild swings that always happen to the demand in the industry? They don't, um, is the is the <laughs> honest answer. Like Some are better at it than others. It all depends on what you're selling at that moment, I think. None of the companies are sophisticated enough or um, set up in a way that can, I mean, I don't know if any company can really handle the up and down swings of the firearms market in a perfect way. So, but it, it comes down to a few things. One is if you're well-managed and if you have, and and then how much money you have in a war chest and if you want to spend it on just, you know, keeping it going until the next round, or you do the thing where you do the cost cutting, where you get rid of employees and, and do all those terrible things, or you try to innovate um, and use, you know, use your war chest of money to innovate something new that maybe will catch on maybe not during the downturn, but we'll catch up on the upturn and, you know, make the downturn not so terrible. Um, but it's, it's really a mixed bag across the board. I, um, that's one of the things I was thinking about prior, like, cause we were looking to build like this big manufacturing facility to make all of our guns. And I knew it was very cyclical and thinking about, okay, how can I do this in a, in a manner that, um, wouldn't, um, really wouldn't i wouldn't have to lay off a whole bunch of people every freaking year or something stupid you know that's really what it came down to and my my approach is the automation approach is more robots i mean i have highly skilled people that can do a lot of things but you know those machine tending robots it, you know you get your money back i think pretty quick on the roi as long as you do it right and if they're sitting on a downtime i don't me personally, I don't necessarily think of that as losing money, especially if you can do some R and D and stuff in there. It's kind of how I look at it. And lights out manufacturing is rapid design solutions. They are. Oh yeah. The, yeah, they make the, is that Troy? that's Troy. Oh, okay. Actually, yeah. actually yeah, that's a, uh, yeah. Troy and Graham. Yeah. Troy uh, and Graham so. are wonderful. So yeah, I went with them. I mean, obviously like Haas has their own pilot pull systems or whatever. And I bought UMC 500s, but the, the cost effectiveness and the simplest, the simpleness of Troy's design and what Graham sells. I love it. I put it on all four and it, it ran great. And I, I want it. And you know, it's not a yellow robot, but I don't need a yellow robot. I have, you know, 45 mm-hmm. minute cycle times. The UR is fine. Like you don't, that's another thing in this industry is like, at least in the, some of the circles that I, I run in, it's like, they want the highest cost, most best, thing in the world and they're buying Yazdas and all this crap. And it's like, well, you're making a freaking forge lower. Um, you know, yeah. you're, you're preach you're, brother. <laughs> you, you can maybe get five UMCs or something. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, yeah. I'm not big on Haas either. Trust me, but they're, they are at a price yeah. point that makes sense for your, your part dictates your process dictates your machine. And, yeah. Cause we had looked at Matsuras, the Matsura horizontals instead but it was like two Matsura horizontals for or four UMC 500s. Right. And that's like yeah. four automated UMC 500s. UMC five, yeah. And it's right. like, that's, it's a no brainer for making a lower. Cause all the, all the, the quote unquote tight tolerance stuff is reamed holes. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's like a tight tolerance hole with like a five thou true position, mm-hmm. which is like a Haas will do that all day. Mm-hmm. And if it's, if your Haas isn't doing that, then you're probably doing something wrong. Yeah, Um, for sure. The thing with houses that I don't like, we ran into with these damn things, especially the way that we had a surface and the way that the tool pass that Chris's group were putting towards it, it handled chip swarf like shit, man. It sucked. And, um, 
constantly cleaning out the tanks and overflowing the tanks and it was just a shit design so um that's definitely uh yeah a knock against the house and then also they were breaking down on just stupid little things nothing major they come right back out like king machine's great they come out they fix it has you know whoa 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 gossiger baby oh gossiger now yeah they just got bought <laughs> yeah. out. but um um they did great but it's just like yeah if i was really running high production and i would be pretty upset i think if these machines were breaking as much as they were that's why, that's why you gotta switch to the mx330 well baby. i know but that's the thing like okay the mx330 but is now yeah, yeah now you're going low production so right. the haas makes more sense again right exactly so so another question we got from shane was what was the biggest machining challenge to manufacture your rifle uh, that's a good one Oh, I think the biggest manufacturing challenge is my mismanagement of the project, to be quite honest. Um, we were going so hard and so fast and I'm was more focused on meeting the end goal of getting a product that I could show potential investors because I knew like the money ramp, you know, I'm, I'm looking at our cash flow and trying to figure out how, what I'm doing is affecting that cash flow and when we're going to run out of cash and make sure at that point before we do that, I have a working prototype, right? And in doing so, I wasn't as, I definitely wasn't. And and then I screwed Chris on this and everybody is, I did not go through the designs that David gave me as well as I should have. So the things that we should have caught and that would have saved us a ton of time, especially on the bolt carrier, because you got to send it to outside processes that, you know, you got to wait for them to come back and, which extends your timelines and, and so forth. I think that was in hindsight, I wish I would have done more pre-planning and really took the time, even though I knew like you got to get this done. I should have took a week and really, really, really went through that design um, because we were fixing them and iterating on the fly, which was great, but we could have caught a lot. I could have caught yeah. a lot. And that was, I think the biggest problem. We did some crazy redesigns on the fly um, I would say also like just piggybacking on that. One of the, one of the things that was not quite a machining challenge, but just like I'll say is more of a cautionary tale. Cause the company that I'm doing work for right now did the exact same fucking thing is it, there is this, um, inclination to, to get ahead of your sales on a on a brand new product and ordering a shitload of parts mm. out from outside vendors yeah, like pins and like mim parts and shit like that and just dumping literally hundreds of thousands of dollars into product that ends up being completely fucking useless yeah, it wasn't hundreds of thousands it was definitely tens of thousands and i yeah again that was my fault i guess i'm like okay I'm dumping the I'm lumping the Artemis into that too. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. Well, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but. yeah, that's totally fair. Um, yeah, but yeah, just take the, I mean, I didn't have the time. So I, you, you take some yeah. bets and some of those bets were good bets. You don't talk about the good bets. You always no, yeah, always. looking at the bad bets, but yeah, there's definitely a mixed bag. And again, it just comes down to more preparation than beginning. Like, again, yeah. I was talking about how Lincoln Electric, I was working on freaking bringing in three Mori's that took, you know, we worked on that for two years prior to buying, you know, getting the purchase yeah. order, which was insane. But there is something to be said that, you know, do a little yeah. prep work. And, there's, a, there's a little balance there. But we did do a cool, th like the, I think one of the coolest iterations we did was the, um, was the uh, Ambi Mag release or Ambi Bolt release where yeah, it went fixing from being that problem like, was great. Yeah. yeah, that was a fun one 
where it was just so weird. Like it was a very simple change, but the mechanism completely relied on a roll pin initially. And it was like unusable. And it was really funny watching like Ernie use it the first time where he used his like whole hand and then repositioned. So it was just his finger and he's like, no problem. (laughs) It was great. But I mean, like it was a simple fix to like moving it away from the roll pin to and a tighter to tolerance a, uh, and pin. like and a and like a designed interference mm-hmm. so that when you would push it wanted to like to release mm-hmm. so you could use it with one finger truly mm-hmm. and that was like a quick get together after we had it all together uh a little redesign jason edm'd some parts and then reassembled it and boom that was done and yeah, I was like, that was a good, that win. Was, we needed a good win. That was a good win. Yeah. That was a, that was a huge win. Yeah. It was so, that was, that was cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Tux garage was asking, cause I think on your Instagram, you showed wiring mm-hmm. the maglos yeah. and he was, he asked how fast can you move a wire through aluminum and would a brooch be a better option? Yes. Yeah, so my wire, or I guess, why are you using wire? Yeah, We're using wire because it's a, I could use it for other things that I needed to make for prototyping or whatever. A lot of shops use it. I think if I if if you're hitting, I would say if you're around, let's say more than 300 um, lowers you need to get done a month, you should go to a brooch. They make a brooch. Ohio Brooch makes one. Another company does, and you can get the actual whole brooch kit, everything for um, roughly two hundred thousand dollars. And I mean, if you buy a new CX um, or a, a new uh, um, RoboCut, I think they're like 160 to, I mean, depending on if you get the C600 or 400 or whatever. But um, if it's just for that, get the brooch. If you need the ability to do other things or want to do other things, then obviously get the wire. But um, we get, our wire is old as shit. It's a piece of shit and I need to replace it. But on that wire, we get a um, our mag well done one every 38 minutes, I believe. Or maybe forty-eight. I don't. I don't know off the top of my head. I can look at the time study sheet that I keep, but that's about where where we're at there. I think on a newer machine with newer technology, you could probably do our magwell in twenty-five minutes or so on a wire. I would imagine. Okay. Very cool. And the the how fast can you move a wire through aluminum is like a crazy loaded question. Yeah, yeah, because it like really depends on the thickness. Oh, the, yeah, the how speed thick is the, the speed is. is super related to the thickness Mm -hmm. of your workpiece. Another thing too is another thing in the industry that people do is like, they try to make the fastest thing um, in that one thing that they're focusing on, but it doesn't mean that's the best thing for your, what you're doing, especially in my world where I'm building my own part. Right. So if it takes a lower 40 minutes um, per op to come off the two UMCs, and then it takes 40 minutes to go through the wire, then that means I'm net getting one, one lower done every 40 minutes. It doesn't matter if the wire goes 20 minutes. I'm still only getting a lower every 40 minutes. And that's a different way of thinking. And you don't get to do that. I think when you're doing job shop work, but that's, yeah. I get to do that. You know, that's, I mean, that's, right. that's tack time. Yeah. And right. That's exactly. a tack time right, thinking. Right. I mean, you can apply it if you know the family of parts you're working on a part basket or whatever, but usually mm-hmm. in a job shop, it doesn't get applied. To yeah, cause, cause we had floated the idea of a three, Robo drill one EDM cell, mm-hmm. remember? Yeah, where like and just balancing each op to like twenty minutes. Yep. And so every twenty minutes you'd get a 
you'd get a lower off. I still think that's be, the best way to do it. That would be fun. That'd be a fun project. Yeah. Awesome. Well, that brings me to shop news and new things. What's going on in your shop? What is new in your world? Uh, we're just, I mean, in, in the shop, we're just working on new things. So Ernie came up with this really cool optic mount design that we have people that are, we've already, people are interested in us doing it. So it seems to be a, a, a one to jump on and kind of, and it's simple enough um, to kind of work out a prototype on. So my guys are working on some of the parts for there. Um, and then just working on rounding out um, a funding round as far as I want to bring in, like I want to replace that wire. Um, I want to get a proper CMM in my shop so I don't have to send it out and look into get a UMC 500 in there to do some other stuff. Um, so yeah, just kind of working on, on that kind of to round out our ability to rapidly prototype our new designs is what I'm coming up with right now. Awesome. Well, that brings me on to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. First of which is what did you research this week? doesn't have to be machining related. It's just been what's been popping up in your browser. So I gave it to Chris. So I'm, I'm really into video games and really video game hardware more so probably than video games at this point. Um, so I collect the systems and stuff and I don't like look for them in like perfect boxes. I used to do that, but not anymore. I just like, I don't know. I always had a thing for like how the Famicom looked or the Genesis or the mega drive or the 32 X and the Sega, the old Sega CD with the Genesis on it, with the 32 X in it. And I like all that stuff. And I also like to screw around with raspberry Pis and, and things of that nature. So, um, I, found listen to one of my podcasts they were talking it's called the besties they talk about video games and one of the hosts was um griffin um mac mcelroy was talking about uh, me you mini plus it's like a little game boy looking thing and i'll i gave i put the link in the in our um in our sheet anyways buy it on amazon it's like 80 bucks and it's a little like nice screen super nice feel like um, updated, I guess, Game Boy, Nintendo Game Boy, that you can throw ROMs and emulators on there and so forth. So I bought that, but then I was reading like the OS that it comes with is shit. So, and then everybody seems to like this Onion OS. So I linked to another video that you can put in there too, a YouTube video of this guy. What was his name? I forget his name. I think I put it in. Joey's Handheld. Yeah, Joey's Handheld. His, 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 his channel. And he goes through in detail good enough detail that, you know, basically I'm just following a tutorial, but basically how to put the onion OS on this thing and make it run on, you OS, which is very nice. And then I put some emulators on there. So then when Chris was here and I felt bad for the poor boy, so I gave him mine that I just built yeah. after I build it and I see that it works. I'm kind of like, okay, I'm done. Yeah, you know, dude, I don't really play the games too much. Right? I was just grinding Pokemon red for like hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah is his uh his wife's friend because we were like eating dinner i'd like just cooked everybody dinner um and i was just like playing it and she's like what are you 12 and it's like dude i just made you biscuits and gravy from scratch relax yeah i'm a, I'm a freaking stud <laughs> yeah <laughs> well what he, what he did say is my mom just died I'm like, yeah oh my i was God. yeah i just started crying and yeah. i pulled that 
pulled that card. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> this been, is what been, she would have wanted. Right. Dude. Exactly. <laughs> so I've been diving into that. I bought another one because I gave Chris one and I'm actually thinking I'm going to build this one the same way as that one. And I think I'm going to start giving away to people like, I don't know, whenever their mom dies or something. Yeah. This is, it's a good, it's a good uh, present to grieve with. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I was like, God, this is solid. So anyways, if, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I mean, it runs great. It runs old stuff. All the, it runs, runs all the way up to PS one, but then it gets kind of janky because you don't have the controller right anymore, you know, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, the last question I ask every guest every week is what are the things you're working on to be a better person, leader, employer, what have you? None of us are perfect. We're all working on stuff. What's yours? I think I alluded to it. You know, I've been just making sure that I'm being the best boss and getting the best I can out of the people without ruining their lives, I guess is, is, is what I do. I try to do and I'm trying to set up and I'm doing experiments and it's been successful I think so far where you know a lot of people in this industry are you know and you know to an extent I am too definitely see it it's like oh, I can't find good people you know how you find good people you fucking pay them like right. pay them some money <laughs> yeah, you yeah. pay them well and you treat <laughs> yeah. them well yeah. and oh what do you know they want to work yeah, with you exactly it's crazy. it's crazy so I mean yeah it's you know maybe hard to um, yeah so I mean I got a good group and just figuring out you know what makes it to where they can perform for me and then when i do need to ask for that couple months of craziness like which i might just start having to do that they can step up the plate and do that and feel good about doing that and i feel good about asking for it knowing that you know we're going to go back to normal and you know normal is something that's good and not bad for their life so some of the things i do in my shop no one has a start or end time there's no clocking in or clocking out i mean there's clocking in clocking out just so i can track hours because I have to pay people but I don't care when you come in and leave and so far that's been fine because you know I just hate the thing oh it's 701 time to write you up because you're supposed to be here at 7 or that uh, bull crap or you need to leave a little early or you left 5 minutes early I don't care do that I also you know do the uh, try to try to do I wish I did it more you know bring them out to lunch or buy them lunch or you know just do those things and just try to be appreciative and then also stay out of their freaking way like you know, I don't need to tell Chuck. At some point, I thought I was going to be, and I wanted to be, you know, a shop where I had direct control of all the tooling in the shop, and you can only use the tooling that I, you know, spec'd out because I knew I was doing all the programming, and I knew like I wanted it to run this way, and I knew if I switch it to this, you know, whatever, which is fine, but you lose something there that I want to keep in an R and D facility, which is try new things. And so I want the reps to come in. I want my guys to engage with those reps. I don't want it to be a walled garden and I want them to try different things. Like, and you know, I don't, you know, my, my goal and I'm getting there is I don't want to be in the shop running machines anymore. I don't want to be programming. And that's the last thing I'm doing. I'm actually programming the NTMX still, but I'm trying to get my guys up to speed on that. And then I can finally drop that off my plate but i only go into i don't need to be in my shop all day you know doing things i got the good guys they're doing their thing they got you know if there's things that need to be tweaked or done i mean i'll i'll speak up and say yeah i don't like that that way or whatever but it's very in general terms i, th- I mean chris has worked with me i think you mm-hmm. see how it goes but yeah that's that's what i and then just the balance between that i just just constantly working on that and trying to be better at that Awesome. I think that's 
I, I really appreciate someone who is willing to recognize those things. I think that, like you said, there's a lot of people in this industry that are bemoaning the fact that they can't find good people. And then you look at their job listings and you're like, oh, you're paying $5 under market average. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. from what I've heard, you treat people like shit. Yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, what do you expect? Yeah. So. It's it's awesome that that's what you're doing. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. I mean, my big push next year will you know after I land a couple more of these deals, or as the company lands a couple more of the deals, is I don't have any benefits really for my group, and I really need to bring in. Even I mean, obviously, selfishly, it benefits me too, but bringing in you know medical plan and, and really taking care of them that way, like so. Really, I'm you know I pay them a fair, good wage, I think, and that's been good. And I try to give them all the days off I can and all that good stuff. But yeah, definitely bolstering the. HR package next year is another big thing I'm looking at. That's awesome. That's really great. Well, thank you both. Chris, thank you for four hours and 10 minutes, boys. I think I, yeah, yeah. we we are by far the longest recording we've done. We'll see if I added it down for the general release, but is there anything else we can add to this? (laughs) Like just, (laughs) just keep it running. Well, We'd even talk about my food addiction. We can come back and talk about that and how that. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to do part two then. I really appreciate you both taking the time. Fantastic to a talk to you, Chris, for the first time in a little while and to meet you and talk to you, Jason. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dylan. I really love your show. I love what you're doing for our community. I mean, really, I think it's, it's good stuff. So I'm glad I've been telling Chris, the last one I listened to when you two were together, that's when I texted you both. I'm like, come on, get me on. Let me oh, in. Oh, yeah. You listened to episode no. 200 and he's like, this is magic. Yeah, 200 was great. <laughs> yeah, 200 was Thanks great. so much. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks to everyone listening. Thanks to the new Patreon members, Delon. Thank you all for listening and I will be back next week.